No, the funny thing is I can't hear Rob now, but that's fine. It's not like Rob talks a lot in these episodes. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> I don't just say gonna... a damn thing. I've actually been generated by AI for the past six months. I take Sundays I'm just, off. I'm going to try a new thing where I'm just going to guess what you're talking about when I see your when I see your screen like unlight up, and then I'll just start talking about something, and uh, you'll fix it in post. <laughs> Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast, and those that June can't get here soon enough. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And yes, if uh, that's not completely clear, we are going to be talking more about the uh, upcoming 10th edition release. Uh, This past weekend, uh, Warhammer Fest dropped in Nottingham, and at 9 in the morning UK time yesterday, they did uh, reveals of... Um, what is you know what is in the launch box? Uh, unfortunately, I did not get to watch it live because it was nine a.m. Nottingham time, which is like three a.m. here. So, so you're saying you're not committed? I would be committed if I was up that late <laughs> yeah, for this. Uh, no, it's like I thing is part of me actually considered it. Like part of me like looked at the right. logistics of doing it. And I'm like, I would be destroyed the next day because I'm I'm in my <laughs> mid forties now. I can't do those kinds of uh, all nighters quite as easily. But uh, uh, yeah, so we will be talking about that, and then we'll also in our main section we'll be talking more about the additional new rules that have been announced and discussed over the last couple of weeks since we recorded. Uh, but first part of the show, we're going to be talking about the uh, news and new releases and then your listener mail. And again, the news is all Warhammer 40k 10th edition, and we now have the name and the contents of the new launch box, and it is appropriately called Leviathan. Yay. And uh, the Leviathan box, it's like, I hope, you know, f- what I find very interesting about this is like the NIDS line in here is pretty much completely uh, i think there's like two units in here that are new models of existing units everything else is brand new and then the marines are about half and half new and reimagined but uh let's get into it what's in the box we have 25 space marine miniatures 47 tyranid miniatures the exclusive leviathan rule book a chapter-approved Leviathan mission deck, and we'll be talking more about the mission decks in the second part of the show, because this is a really big, interesting big change. And then a transfer sheet, because of course there is. But I will say, at least the transfer sheet clearly shows, like, Blood Angels, Dark Angels, Space Wolves decals on it, so they're not just going like, yep, this is always going to be an Ultramarine box and nothing else. Yeah, I, I watched the replay of the... Uh of the stream because I wasn't going to get up at one in the morning either. Um, and they mentioned something like 800 different, like tiny decals and stuff on that one sheet covering, you know, all of the chapters and all of the things that you would expect. So it looked really cool. Like uh, I'm excited for that. And uh, so uh quick rundown. We're 
we'll we'll talk about the models in a little bit. I'm going to kind of skip past that portion because they do separate articles for each side of that box. But besides all the uh, units, then we have the rule book, which you know it's the it's the standard large rule book. Lots of lots of fluff, lots of lore, you know, lore rules, artwork. Um, the core rules are in the book, and one thing uh, they've got a s- separate article about the book itself. And then alongside that, they're releasing a novel. And we have our roadmap. And I think this is, you know, one of the most thing. you know, one, one, this is one of the things we've been kind of wondering, like, what is the release schedule going to look like for the next year? And uh, unsurprisingly, our first two codexes are going to be Space Marines and Tyranids because they're the launch forces. So, of course, they will be. But we're not getting them until autumn. So we're going to have three, four months like if this drops in June, we're probably not looking at the codexes until September. So we're going to have three months of index 10th edition. Mm-hmm. We get codex Tyranids and codex space Marines. Will they drop the same weekend? I hope not. It says autumn. So I'm expecting one a month cross fingers, which yeah, I would be fine with that. And that'll give us our first peek into what the new codexes will look like. What the new, um, formations detachments will be uh then winter we're going to get mechanicus and necrons which makes me think there's going to be a narrative tied to that as well since i like the pairing of those two yes very i definitely agree one thing that's interesting as well is and we're not going to get super deep into it but this morning they did the horus heresy preview and roadmap as well and sometime approximately winter of 2023 there's more stuff for uh, mechanic is coming in heresy. So that would be interesting to see if they finally kind of close those ranges a little bit and like maybe start giving Mechanicus some of the forge world, you know, the horse heresy forge world stuff. If, especially if they do some of that in plastic. Yes. I, I would not be surprised if we see that kind of shared between lines and then spring 2024, we're looking at dark angels, orcs, adeptus custodies, tau and chaos space Marines. It's nice. The chaos space Marines are not going to have to wait like a whole two year cycle to get a new book. Ah, just world leaders. And truthfully, (laughs) I think this is a good mix of factions because you've got Imperial factions, you got space Marine factions, Xenos factions and chaos factions. So you got all four of those pretty much covered. Yeah. Mm. It makes me wonder if there's going to be a narrative going along with this, too, and because that ties them all together. I don't know. A thought. Yeah, I would, I would hope so, because they've been doing a really good job with, like, the Crusade books and, like, the, the different battle zones and stuff like that. But the biggest thing for me is, like, I'm just glad that they're spreading this out. You know, that was the big thing in 8th edition. When they started rolling the codexes, they were doing two, you know, two a release cycle, you know, four in a month, things like that. And this is like, well, you've got, yeah, the next 10, but it's planned out over the next year. Okay, that's well, that's good, you know. And that's the part I like is we see a roadmap, we see the plan, because how many times that they say, oh, yeah, that's going to come up sometime, and we, it, we mm-hmm. never got the feeling of what the next one was or when it was, and here we have kind of like a definitive order, like a year yeah. in advance. This is really helpful. 
and they've they've been a lot better recently about providing roadmaps for things. And you know, you started I think with like the Kill Team stuff, where they're like, "This is the new season of Kill Team. This is the roadmap." But then they started doing it for 40k. They doing it in Sigmar. They've laid it out for Heresy. Like, I, this is good. I like this. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also tells us like we've got nine codexes featured here. That also means that if they continue a cycle similar to this, that by spring of 2025, we should be mostly switched over. Like, without yeah, being... ready uh, for 11th uh, edition. Uh, <laughs> hush your mouth. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but but this that's a pace they can maintain without it feeling breakneck, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, we're, the, the double codex drops. I mean, I'm hoping they don't do that. I would really like them to not do that. Yeah. But yeah, one a month I'd be fine with and even being able to and with nine in a year, you can even take some breaks. You might have months that like like summer like will be a you know, a new game for you know, some of the one of the other core games and they won't necessarily do a codex release that month. And I'm fine with that. That gives gives a little bit of breathing space. But also all these armies will theoretically be playable before their codexes come out. So that is Yeah, if if they stick with the codex design philosophy they've they've espoused there shouldn't be a vast power level difference between codex and index armies. They should play similarly so they can take their time and they can do it at a slower pace. Assuming they can actually maintain that codex design philosophy this time. Right. (laughs) Again, that's, you know, that is what remains to be seen. So also hidden in a little, because there's a, if you sign up for your for their newsletter and create have a my ha- uh, my Warhammer account before May fourteenth, they're going to send ten people uh, a copy of the Leviathan box set for free. Um, the terms and conditions are kind of interesting because they do also reveal the cost of the box. Uh, the value on, on point eleven of the terms and conditions, the value of the contents of each prize is GDP. So 150 British pounds or 420 Australian dollars. We do not have a U.S. price listed, but given that uh, Indomitus was 120 British pounds, which I think when they released it was about like 180, 200 dollars, or like it was 199 was the uh, yeah. The Horse Heresy starter box was 250, I think U.S. Mm-hmm. So I think that's yeah. probably what you're looking at for this. I think that's probably because I think that was also 150 pounds. And granted, because of ways hands generally at, at everything, because of what's happened the last several years, the the various uh, conversion rates are different now. But I want to say it was around 250. I think for the horse heresy box, uh, horse heresy box is currently 310. Oh, and okay, it is <laughs> it's 310 and uh, British pound it's 180. So oh, that okay. tells so me that, that, or 185. So yeah, this is probably going to come in at about a $250 box, would be my guess. Okay. And they did say it will be available sometime, it will go up for pre-order sometime in June. We don't have a, a more tightly uh, defined date than that, but June is when pre-orders will go up. I imagine it's going to be like a two to four week pre-order cycle. Like, yeah, they've done that in the past. We're like, hey, it's a launch box. We're going to have it available for pre-order for like two, three weeks, which for again sure. would sure. would make a June 24th street date very believable. You know, that's a rumor that we've heard before. And if it goes up like June 3rd, which I believe is the weekend of the uh, U.S. Open in Kansas City, 
that would give them yep. a three week window to have it for pre order. So that would be my guess is like June third or June tenth is when it'll go up for pre order. Okay, the way what? this is shaking out, I have a concern, okay. and my concern is. When Leviathan drops, that will be the only way to get 10th edition rules for maybe like a month before they actually release the real in print rule book in print. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't love that. I do hope that they handle the pre-order part of this one better than. And I granted, I know when uh, Indominus dropped, the world was in, we were in a much different place. Just again, everything going on. Um, but I know they ran into a ton of issues, pre-orders and enough stock and getting, only getting a couple of, you know, some stores only got a couple of boxes and people weren't getting what they wanted. It sold out online. So I really hope they, they have the issues of the Leviathan fixed, like that they have the supply chain issues fixed before then, because if that is going to be the only way to get the rules and to get that stuff in print, you got to make sure you have enough for people who want it. So, right. Now, they've got to be, hopefully they're ramping up for this. It's going to be a high demand. Like, they're going to have to do, like, that queuing system and hard limits on how many people can pre-order. Mm-hmm. Um, getting into the books itself, I, I think let's go ahead and transition to that before we get into the individual models that are in here. Because uh, it'd be kind of nice to know how this is going to look from a release standpoint. So, uh, you only get one book in Leviathan, but as the name suggests, it's a monster of biblical proportions. It's their standard special edition hardback. It's got the ribbon bookmark, special cover, etc. Um, they do have the book divided into several sections, the Warhammer hobby, dark Imperium background forces of the 41st millennium. Again, we've seen these in all the big rule books, core rules, combat patrol rules and crusade rules for the tyrannic war. Um, now this part, this right here, I find very interesting. The core rules, meanwhile, are a 60-page section, which will explain everything you need to throw down the tabletop, you know, etc. Cleverly, the core rules section has its own separate page numbers. This guarantees that no matter which edition of the rules you look at, whether they're in this volume or other editions yet to be released, you'll be able to cross-check rules on the same page number. That's pretty brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually really smart. I like that. And hopefully that hints at that we're going to be getting the slim rule books in the future or when they release another, you know, box set that they'll reprint the rule book as well. Like that's because I think just it shouldn't be so hard to get the rule book as it as it was last edition. Let's see. And then we have Combat Patrol, new simplified way to play 40k. It balances the Combat Patrol boxes available for each faction into their own game mode, granting certain units extra abilities and removing some from others. So confirming the data sheets that you use for combat patrol will not be the same ones you use for standard 40k. They will be their own variant uh, of data sheets. Fastest, simplest way to get your forces on the tabletop. All you need are these rules and one combat patrol per player. As it happens, a portion of the Tyranids and Space Marines you'll find in Leviathan can be used to form a full combat patrol for each faction, which means either they're going, which probably means they're going to replace some of the existing combat patrols, but that means they should also have rules for the existing combat patrols. So we could have multiple combat patrols per faction, which will be interesting. Yeah. Especially for space Marines. Like absolutely. Because this one will be obviously be more of like a first company Terminator heavy one, but there's already previous combat patrols with, you know, primary primaris intercessors and things like that and they they showed on the uh on the stream as well like 
and I wish I'd thought to take a screenshot of it, but they showed like what the Tyranid uh, combat patrol is going to look like. And yeah, it's, you know, it's what you would expect. It's, it's all of the, the gaunts and, you know, the artillery gaunts and everything from the new, the new box with, you know, a couple of the leaders and stuff like that. So pared down a little bit from the full contents of the box, but absolutely what you can make out of this. So, mm-hmm. I see. Then there are the Crusade rules. These will be released as a separate supplement book later this year. But for now, this book is the place to find them. So I, I do find it interesting they're just going to lift this section and release it as its own book. But at least acknowledging that you won't have to buy the big rule book to get these eventually. <laughs> but for right now, this is where the Crusade rules will exist. Well, I find it interesting with this that they're doing it as Crusade subtitle Tyrannic War. Which means, are we going to get new crusade rules for different narrative events in this edition? Like, I don't know. Like, it just, that seems, that seems like an interesting way to take crusade, you know, and kind of have these different, being able to tweak some rules or change how you build your crusade force for a specific narrative event. That's, that's kind of neat. Yeah. And we, we know nothing of, like, we have no details beyond the fact that mm. it is a tyrannic war crusade section and then eventually book. Let's see. Chapter-approved Leviathan mission deck. Then there are the mission cards, building on the success of the chapter-approved Grand Tournament mission packs and taking inspiration from the Tempest of War cards released last year. Deck represents the way to build exciting, unexpected, and well-balanced missions for your games. We're going to be talking about the rules for this in the second part of the show. But this is apparently, like, they do mark this as chapter-approved. This is apparently going to be, like, the tournament format. Like, this is the game format. For, I, for 10th edition. I think this is brilliant, and we'll get into it, obviously, later. I think this is absolutely brilliant. I love this. No tournament in the world will use it. I'm just calling <laughs> that right now. No tournament will use this. I think I love it. I think it's brilliant. No tournament will use this. They will, they will hard code all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, again, we'll talk about that when we get to that in the second <laughs> section. But uh, I see why you're saying that, and... It'll be interesting to see how widely this gets adopted, but yeah, I, th- I imagine for yeah. tournament settings, aspects of this will be used, but not the deck as is, but yeah. we'll get to yeah. that. <laughs> uh, and then uh, and then you also get like included in the deck, much like we have in the Tempest of War decks, uh, punch out objective tokens. So th- that's the, the non-plastic components that are going to be in, the, in this box. Uh, and then... Uh, Finally, we have the the two sides. Uh, we'll start with Space Marines because Space Marines always come first because they are the poster boys of 40K. Um, so we start off with a Captain in Terminator armor. Uh, I mean, yeah, he definitely is a new Captain in Terminator armor. We've seen Terminator captains before. This guy is no exception. It's a nice sculpt and, you know, yeah. scaled up to match the, the newer Terminators, but... It also looks like a classic 40k miniature, just done with modern design sensibilities. Yeah, and and they they did specifically confirm in the in the stream that like even though this is the images and stuff were all decked out in Ultramarine Marines iconography, that is all just the decals. That is there is no like sculpted on Ultramarine specific details. So this can be used for any you know Space Marine faction. Yeah, so that that is good because in the past, like Indominus, like there was a number of. Th- I mean, it wasn't too bad, but like in the in past sets, they have definitely done the. Yep, this is definitely sculpted on with the Ultramarines logos yep. on it, or like, Dark Angels. Ah, yeah, right. 
Let's see, Librarian and Terminator armor. You know, strange, like, okay, so the Force Axe is very much a throwback to, like, the old, like, librarian designs. Like, mm. I don't think we've seen somebody with a Force Axe like this for a long time. I like that aspect of it. I actually don't like the paint job that they used for it. I get they're going for, like, the glowing runes effect. I I don't like that particular take. Uh, it just, that one kind of leaves me a little cold. I get where they're going for yeah. it. Not for me. I think, aside from the paint job, I really do like the sculpt. Like, I think, you know, mm-hmm. he's moving. He's got, you know, he's kind of in an action pose. Um, mm-hmm. He definitely looks distinct from, you know, other other Terminator wearing, you know, people. So it's like, I, I like it, but yeah, I, I don't love that paint scheme. Uh, let's see. Then we've got a lieutenant with a combi flamer. They actually showed him off a couple of weeks before where he's, re- like, strapped a piece of uh, Tyranid chitin to his shoulder pad. He's got the co- he's got dual combat knives and the combi flamer strung you know slung about his uh, from like shoulder to waist. Uh, he's fine. And if yeah. you include the one stuck in the base, they point out that he has three knives. Why does your dad let you have three <laughs> knives, Billy? <laughs> I'm gonna just keep milking that old meme. The apothecary biologist, which is a different apothecary, because this is a science apothecary. He's cutting people up for science. <laughs> he doesn't care. I don't care about your damn gene seeds. I've got tyranids to sample. <laughs> right. I do think this is interesting because they've specifically pointed out that he is wearing Gravis armor. So he is in, you know, the heavy armor, not your standard, you know, Primaris Mark 10 armor. So I think it's neat that they're finally kind of incorporating apothecaries wearing different different types of armor. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have the Terminators. We've seen them. They've shown these off before. Nothing really surprising here. They are Terminators. Yep. I mean, they're really nice looking Terminators. They, they look Terminator. good. Yeah. Yep. Uh, we get new Stern, uh, Stern Guard vets uh, with a variety of combi weapons and uh, like the heavy bolter with a. I like the heavy bolter with the drum feed. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I am really excited for this kit. Once we get the full multi-part plastic kit, because if it's like the, if it's similar in design to the old Stern Guard veterans kit, this is going to be great for getting extra weapons, getting like extra, like, you know, uh, shoulder pads, extra tabards, all of the stuff that you can use to make all of your other Marines, you know, also look cool. So I'm, this is a great kit. I've, I've always loved the, the, you know, the firstborn Stern Guard kit. So I'm really looking forward to when this one comes out because so much of this could be used for Death Watch. It could be used for, you know, your, you can use this to like fancy up a sergeant or all these things. I I, I love this kit. Now, I, I do really, yeah, I like, I like the Stern Guard and yet they're also not like overwrought. Like mm-hmm. they, it's a good balance on the design. I actually, yeah, do like these. Uh, and then we have the Infernus Squad, which are basically uh, a an all flamer squad of Primaris, or more accurately, Pyre Blasters, which we first saw with the uh, the new Black Templars. They apparently decided that they're so good that they're just going to do entire Horse Heresy style squads of them. Yeah. And so we get te- a squad of ten in the box, and we get the data sheet for the Infernus Squad. Um, the uh, they are armed with a bolt pistol and a pyre blaster. Pyre blaster has ignore, cover, and torrent, which again, torrent we believe is the automatically hits rule. 
uh, because it does also have no ballistic skill, which would make sense. And it's a strength five flame, 12 inch flamer. Pretty right. standard. Uh, but they do have an ability called Purge the Foe. In your shooting phase, after this unit has shot, you can select one enemy infantry unit hit by one or more of those attacks made with a Pyre Blaster. That enemy unit must take a Battle Shock test. And we'll be getting a bit more into what that means later on. But uh, you can basically force morale checks, which is a another interesting way to use how they are changing morale in this edition. It's, it's not just like, oh, it applies a penalty. It's like, no, you can actually have units that force morale checks, even if they wouldn't normally fall under the conditions for a morale check, or in this case, a battle shock test. So that's yeah. kind of cool. We're seeing seeing some new use of the rules. Uh, and then uh, finally, we have the Ballistus Dreadnought, which is what if a Redemptor, but with the old missile last cannon build. Uh, suitably chunky and boxy. We also see uh, we see a couple of interesting things here. First off, we uh, we're getting our stats on uh, like frag missiles, crack missiles, las cannons, or at least the ballistas versions of them. Uh, the crack missile strength ten, which uh, would actually punch through some of the armor or have a better chance of punching through some of the armor we've seen. Because like we know, handheld meltas weren't going to do the trick at only strength nine, but at strength ten. <laughs> The crack missile is not too bad, and they get two shots with it. AP minus two, D6 damage. Uh, the uh, missile launcher, the frag shot, is a blast weapon. And we are actually going to talk about that because we have actually learned what blast weapons do. Uh, but we'll talk about that in the second part of the show. Uh, but 2D6 attacks, ballistic skill three, strength five, AP zero, one damage. The LAS cannon is two shots, uh, not twin linked. It does not have the reroll wounds ability, but the storm bolter does. Uh, but the last cannon, most importantly, strength 12, AP minus 3, D6 plus 1 damage. And then it does have melee weapons. It has stompy feet. Stompy mm. feet. It's, they get five attacks with stompy feet. So I'm I'm interested with this. And I, and it's so looking at the, the picture that they showed here, this model looks it looks like it's taller than the other ones. Like, I don't know. It just doesn't seem right. But I opened the it legs the tab, look like, a little bit stretched out yeah well so here's the thing i opened it in a tab and compared it to the redemptor dreadnought and it's exactly the same i gotta think it's just because it doesn't have the arms like because it's just it's not as wide but like no mm. the, it's exactly the same height it's the same legs you know it's the same it's the exact same torso it's just the arms that are swapped out which a is really awesome because that means that oh, you can potentially kit bash, you know, and, and swap arms out like you could with the old Dreadnoughts. But it's just so weird that, like, the only difference in this model, and maybe it's slightly posed differently, too, but, yeah, like, just not having the wide arms that the other one has, like, just makes it look different and, like, taller and not... I don't know. I, I looked at this, and I couldn't figure out exactly why. I'm like, this looks off. But I'm sure once we see the the full 360 of it and actually see the model, it won't be. But I don't know. I just thought that was very, very weird to me when I saw it. <laughs> yeah, it like it does feel like it has very different proportions. And maybe it is just because the arms, the arms, quote unquote, have just feel more like an extension of the torso rather than actual arms. And it does kind of mm -hmm. change the the way the proportions feel in your brain. So, yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. Um, also, uh, stat line wise, 
it does have deadly demise d3 so it'll do d3 mortal wounds when it dies if you roll a roll a six it has the ability ballista ballista strike each time this model makes a ranged attack that targets a unit that is not below half strength uh you can re-roll the hit roll and we see our first example of what that damaged uh, stat that they talked about when they were talking about vehicles, like how this would affect damaged one to four wounds remaining. While this model has one to four wounds remaining, each time this model makes an attack, subtract one from the hit roll. That's the only penalty. It's still got its full movement. It still has its full attacks. It's not like crippled by being removed, reduced down to like ballistic skill five or something like that on its attacks. It's just a little less good at hitting. At so when no it's more locking up dead. tanks with a shot. No, uh. it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> also, I did find it interesting that they did give it the Walker keyword, which I think means we will see rules that interact with that, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't know yet, but Walker is a thing that we will see on multiple vehicles that are on on feet. So that is that is I'm, I'm curious to see what kind of rules interactions we're going to have with that. Uh, but that is our look at the Space Marine half of the Leviathan box. Now let's switch over to the Tyranid half. Um, uh, so first off, the Screamer Killer, uh, we get our. Our first look, or not, I don't think it's the first look, but a first really good look at this new Carnifex variant, which is not really new. It's the original Carnifex that has, like, disappeared and then been brought back as, like, a separate Carnifex stat line. And now it is a, once again, with its own model. Uh, They do mention that it is the largest of the Carnifexes. It doesn't look as hunkered down as we're used to seeing on Carnifexes, so he seem he seems slimmer, you know, like he he's he's been getting mm. a good workout. When they and they again they did mention on the uh on the preview stream that this is a separate unit. Like this doesn't replace the existing Carnifex model, you know, unit. So you can still have the other kit and things like that, and then also have this one in here, because this one's a little bit bigger and it's more dedicated for melee. So I'm like, all right, that's that's an interesting way to add, you know, new new bioforms and and bring models in without replacing a a relatively new uh, compared to you know some of the other stuff like newish model in that in that line because the Carnifex model is still great. Yeah, I I I like this model. It it does and just like the especially you know the pose very evocative of of the original Screamer Killer. Hmm. Without looking quite so goofy as the old scream, I mean, <laughs> right. OG Screamer Killer was pretty bad. Yeah, OG Tyranids were pretty bad. Like, yeah, yeah, they were. <laughs> but, Models have uh, come a long way since the nineties. Oh, this thing looks appropriately <laughs> terrifying. Uh, stat line: uh, eight movement, nine toughness, a two-up save, ten wounds, eight-up leadership, uh, OC three. Uh, it has a the bioplasmic scream as its ranged weapon. It's assault, which means it can advance and fire it. Uh, it's blast. We'll talk about that later. Uh, Eighteen inch range, D six plus three attacks, uh, four ballistic skills, strength eight, AP minus two, one damage, uh, and then it's talons. Ten attacks with the screamer killer talons. Weapon skill three, strength ten, AP minus two, three damage. This thing will eviscerate a unit of space marines when it gets to it. Yeah, yeah. As it should. Uh, that, yeah, it should. That's terrible. I mean, that's a lot of damage output. Um, 
It has Deadly Demise 1, so instead of Death Throws, that has just been rolled into It Explodes on 6s, uh, but for only one mortal damage. Uh, it has Synapse, which we st- we don't know what that does yet for the, the Tyranids faction. And then it has the Death Scream ability in your shooting phase after this model is selected, it, or has shot, select one unit, hit by one or more of those attacks. This unit, that unit must make a Battleshock test, subtracting one from that test. So not only do they are like pyroblast or the uh, yeah the inferno squad like they can force a b- battleshock test they also make it happen at a penalty so uh they are equally terrifying and what right. i find it doesn't here even is have to wound yeah no it doesn't it's just yeah it, it just, just hit. hit that's wild <laughs> yeah no, that this thing looks pretty good and again we're, we're going to see more use of, of these uh morale related abilities so really liking that uh, then moving on, we now have our name for the giant floating uh, brain psychic be- bug that we saw in the trailer. It is not a Norn Queen emissary. It is, in fact, a Nero Tyrant. Bob. Oh, I was it is close. Bob. Bob the, Bob the Nero Tyrant. Yep. Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd also was- seen people theorizing that it might be the return of, of the Doom, but yeah, no, this is... Uh, this is... This is this is a big old brain boy, like pretty neat. Well, and what I like about that is like c- talking about it being, uh, you know, kind of harkening back to the old second edition Tyranid models. It is like, especially with the brain and the crown, it is very reminiscent of the original uh, Neurothrope models, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, which I thought was really cool. So it's neat that they're up- taking those old design cues but updating them so that they're not uh, nearly as nineties goofy. <laughs> <laughs> Now this thing looks looks badass, and again going with the the thing we've seen on like the the Malanthrope and uh, like the 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 Neurothrope, where we've got like that exposed brain like breaking through the carapace, and uh, yeah, it just looks appropriately psychically nasty. And then going kind of along the lines of this, we also have the Nero Gaunts. Uh, so these are Gaunts, but. Uh, a different variety of them. These serve as relays for the Synapse Network and bodyguards for those that would focus it. Larger node beasts can be distinguished by the bulbous growths on their backs, while the smaller gaunts chitter around it with sharp claws and teeth. Uh, We've got a new potential troop choice. Or, well, not troop choices. There are no troop choices in the new edition, but... Right. More varieties of griblies. Yeah. Yeah, more like new kinds of gaunts to play around with are are interesting more more options so that you don't just have like a horde army and you only have like two choices for like what those are going to be and one of them's just better than the other <laughs> and so that one's the one <laughs> yeah. that, that everybody just uses yep uh, and then we move forward we've got the uh what we thought might be a Shrike, it is instead... Well, it is similar to a Shrike, the Winged Tyranid Prime. Yeah, the, this is neat. Um, like, it's technically something that is is just a, a new, like, unit choice. Like, because they hadn't really had a, a Winged Prime before. Um, to my recollection, and yeah, this is this is an impressive looking model. I I doubt that we'll get shrikes soon, because uh, I, I I'm pretty sure this is just the one model. But like, yeah, mm-hmm. the 
Yeah, it's. Yeah. I, I do it like cool. the look of it, and, and it's nice to have kind of a smaller flying HQ choice, too. You're not limited to just a, a fly rent. Yeah. Let's see. Then we've got the Von Ryan Sleepers. We discussed those last episode. Basically, time, you know, smaller Lictor variants. Uh, they these leapers take genetic elements from hormigons and lictors, combining the best qualities to create a deadly melee threat. Exceedingly fast due to their balancing tails and their smaller size makes them good ambush predators. And then we've got the termagants, twenty in the box, and they still come with those adorable ripper swarms we all know and love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I've seen it. It looks like these are on. I think. People have pointed out, like, comparisons from other shots uh, that looks like these are on 32 millimeter bases, so. Oh, 32s. Wow, because previously I thought they might just be on 28s, but man, 32s would definitely punch them up size-wise a bit. Yeah, because, like, it, I mean, it showed a picture, like, kind of at a down angle, and it showed them, like, right next to some Space Marines, and it really looks like they're on the same size base. Hmm. Okay, that's that is definitely bigger than I thought. That's that's going to make horde armies really eat up a lot of table space, too. Um, uh, yep. Uh, uh, then we get something new, uh, the barb gaunts, which are basically like what if you took biovores and shrunk them down or, or strapped their guns or something like them to uh Termagant bodies. In fact, bar, uh, barbgants are a tyrannid artillery organism working closer to the front line than hive garden biovores. The biocannons on their back are actually bonded with the same parasitic organism that has enslaved the rest of the gaunt to its will. Yeah, these are these are neat looking. Uh, uh, another like smaller yet kind of heavy weapon kind of option. Just like more variety in the little griblies is is nice. Mm-hmm. Well, and they did confirm on the previous stream as well that these are on 40 mil bases. So these guys are smaller, but they're still pretty decent size. Let's see. And then we have the last model, the Psychophage. Uh, Massive Psychophage is an organic furnace that gobbles up enemies and turns their essence into a raging pyro- uh, psychoclastic torrent. Their favorite food is psychers, and the mass of whipping tentacles around their gaping maw can strip the mind from the warp inclined before they can lift their magic book staff orb in defiance. Creatures' massive bulk and terrifying fanged maw harks back to the horror specs, but the Psychophage has a much more selective diet in mind. Um... I was surprised to see them have a brand new like consumer beast in the box set. Yeah. I also like, like that it I, has like part of a psyker on the base. Like just like just, just the part, leg. Just just part of one. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the thing that surprises me the most about the like the the Space Marine side it's like it's a new dreadnought variant. Okay, and it's terminators and uh stern guard and a lieutenant like a phobos lieutenant and a you know, a librarian and a captains like okay yeah that's this is all stuff where you know there's only like one or two really newish things in there the nid side on the other hand it it feels almost i'm like other than the screamer killer because we've had stats for those before and the termagants like this is pretty much completely new like yeah then their codex was already not starved for choice so i imagine the new tyranid codex is just going to be stuffed full of potential army builds with all these new yeah. units. 
So, so yeah, I mean, this is everything that's going to be in the launch box from the, the plastic to the books to the, uh, you know, just the, 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 our roadmap for what's going to be coming next. Um, so, and, and a rough estimate of where the price is going to end up landing. Uh, so June, like June's going to be a big month. And of course, the first weekend of June will be the U.S. Open in Kansas City when they will have demo games uh, available. Apparently, at Warhammer Fest, there were quite long lines to get in demo games, and like the models on the table were kind of limited. They, you know, and they didn't have the rule books available because they didn't want anybody snapping pictures of the rule books. They did have like data sheets out, but the data sheets were the. Ballistus Dreadnought, the, like, I think it was the Infernus Squad, the Screamer Killers, and the Termagants. So all things that we have seen data sheets for at this point. So nobody mm. was going to be getting extra information out there. And the games were all being adjudicated basically by Game Masters who would tell you the rules. They did not let you have sheets to see the rules. So they're still, like, they're they're getting previews out there, but they're still kind of holding it close to the vest. And I think we're going to see that same kind of thing going on in June until they are ready to like drop the rules like yeah in 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 fuller form as far as the other things from uh warhammer fest i don't think they've done the kill team reveal i think they're doing those monday but we did get the horse heresy uh reveals and the the one thing i mean there's a couple things there that are kind of cool and one thing that is a bit cryptic uh we are getting plastic assault marines for horse heresy which is cool plastic beaky yep. marines and and we get the uh, the roadmap for Horus Heresy. Uh, there's the Vindicator Siege Tank is coming like later in this you know in the spring. Uh, we've got the Night Lancer. That's the big thing I want to talk about because I saw the video for that this morning. It was like, oh no, they didn't. Yes, they did. the The Serastus Night Lancer, which is has been available as a Forge World model for a decade and is a favorite to see at Night Jousts because, it I mean, it is literally the Night Joustiest of Night Joust Knights <laughs> in that it has a giant laser lance and a giant, sh- like, force shield. They're redoing that in plastic, in like, entirely. And I am here for it. I want it so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will be looking forward to that as well. I don't need more knights, especially since knights aren't on my list of things I want to try early on in 10th. But no, I'm thrilled to have this in plastic because I didn't realize it was a 10-year-old model. It it does not look bad. No, it's... Having it in plastic, I think it makes it more available to everybody because Forge World is still, I'll say air quotes, rare, even though... You can get it at the major cons, U.S. Opens, and the Warhammer store, or like the, well, the cafe stores. Mm-hmm. It's just nice to see them kind of branch out and bring more stuff that's Forge World into the main, I'll say, the main game. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that'll be neat. And I, I'm wondering if that's also going to come out around the same time Mechanicus does, or if it's just going to be its own just model drop. Here's a rules card for it, since... Everything's um, going to be index they, and rules cards. Uh, I think it's going to be its own own drop. Uh, they do say it is like it is the summer release for 
or one of the two summer releases for Horse Heresy. And the rules for it are already available because they have a book called Liber Mechanicum. So, like, they have the rules for it. They're just making it easier to get. Well, they and they did specifically mention that there will be 40K rules for it. So whether that's well, yeah. included in the, you know, what kind of what you're getting at, Dennis, if that's included in, like, the next codex, or if that's just included in the data sheets, they did confirm that it'll be out there. So, mm-hmm. and what I like about this, too, is once you get that chassis, that opens up things like the Castigator and some of these other uh, Forge World, you know, the the Archeon, some of the other types of of uh, knights that are only Forge World that also, you know, use that same chassis. So uh, it's, yeah, it's I, I'm I, excited. It's very cool. Yeah, I was wondering if they're going to kind of do what they do with the, um, like, the Contemptor Dreads, where they'll have, like either arm packs that you can buy, whether in plastic or in resin, but it's like you buy the, the night Lancer body and then you buy like the Acheron arms or something like that, you know? Yep. And cause that's like, I've been wanting one of them. Like the Lancer is not specifically the one I've been wanting. I like, but the, like I would be totally happy with one of these. Yeah, I, I'm excited for this, and I'm curious to see. And they did not say, like, will this kit will make the other variants as well? So it sounds like it's just going to make the one. But Horse Heresy, they've been doing a lot of the, and you can buy the add-on pack that gives you mm-hmm. the additional options. So I my guess is that's where they're going to land on it, maybe, like, the month after. Yeah. Um, they and do like, say uh, summer will have new upgrades, winter will have upgrades, spring will have upgrades, so who knows where it'll drop. And as Dennis said, like, it just makes this kit much more accept- accessible because mm. th- this size of night kit from Forge World is a- probably about the largest resin kit that I would feel comfortable dealing with. And I've put together more resin than other people. And like, that's kind of right on the edge of like, eh, this is very difficult to work with and very difficult to fix. Putting it in plastic is going to make it so much more accessible for you know the the you know anybody that wants that wants one, and it's going to be cheaper because right. it's it's a. I'm looking at the Forge World site right now. It is a three hundred and forty five dollar resin kit. So uh, my hope is the plastic one will not be that. <laughs> I'm gonna guess probably in the two fifty range, which yeah. will still be an improvement. I mean, that'll still be much better. Yeah. But yeah, like the Castigator or the Acheron, I would be I I would love to see either of those. I know they have different heads than the Lancers, so that would be like they're not yeah. exactly the same. They're pretty close. So, but I would I'm imagine if you're able to what do the body in plastic. Happen. Yeah, once yeah. they do that body in plastic, I imagine that it's a very short walk to change the arms and the heads and some of the posing stuff. So, yeah. So that yeah, that excited is for that. <laughs> that is super cool. And then like there was one other thing that they they did mention um is that uh it, they had an encoded transmission coming which was very very cryptic just shows like unit markers being moved around on like a map. I'm going to say if there has been one thing that has been more eagerly hoped for, especially now that we have things in this scale, I'm going to predict the return of Epic. Epic started out as a horse heresy gaming system. Like the original horse heresy was an Epic mm-hmm. set. And now that we, I mean, we have Titanicus 
So we have things in the appropriate scale. So I could absolutely see an epic scale horse heresy game coming. Yeah. And and it would slot in so well with what's already there. I think it, it, it it's also a chance to get people who might not be interested in playing specifically Titanicus to buy Titanicus models at the proper scale. <laughs> so yeah. it, it's a chance to to expand that market a bit too. So yeah, I'm I'm I am curious. I can't say for a fact it is epic, but that would be my guess if I was gonna if I was gonna throw anything out there. And I think that is pretty much everything because you know, like everything has been focused on um, on tenth edition over the last couple of weeks. So uh, that is uh, so, well. One last thing, sorry, since we're recording slightly oh, no, no, later no, no, than normal, fine. the uh, the the week the this week's pre orders went up. Our next week's pre orders like were revealed. So the Gallo Dar- Gallo Fall Kill Team box with squats and like the squat jump pack. Will be Votan. go up for pre order, <laughs> yeah. Squats will go up. For, will go up next week, including uh, the Imperial, the Chaos Beastmen, and some more of the the Gallo Fall terrain. And then um, Arbites are getting uh, their specific kill team box. So yeah, I just thought it was kind of neat that they're watch for some of that's coming disappear out. almost immediately. Absolutely, yeah. Because the, yeah, theirs are going to sell. It. But now that it's it's kind of interesting that they're getting that they got the uh, the RB Day's uh, kill team box out much faster than they did for a lot of the other ones. For some yeah, reason, yeah, normally it took like four <laughs> to six months. It felt like, yeah. I, I wonder why they decided to get this one out faster. Hmm. <laughs> no reason. It's a mystery. Yeah. But yeah, so uh, yeah, so that's that's next week's pre-orders with more more kill team stuff for Voton, and uh, I'm excited to see Beastman. I'm yeah, I, I I'm sad that I have missed out on the the uh, like I'm not a kill team player, but I do I've kind of wanted to get in on this stuff, but I just the timing has not been right on any of it for me, and unfortunately, this is the end of the Gallo Dark storyline, so. I don't think we're going to see any more of it. Hopefully that doesn't, hopefully it means like the, the train will still be available for a while. Cause I would like to get it eventually. Yeah. No, I think it will be. And like I said, this, you know, this box will also have another set in it. So I imagine there'll be more terrain sets out there. There's some of the specific upgrades um, for the terrain will be available separately. So, you know, some of the breaching walls and things like that. So I think that's very interesting that they're making all that stuff available. So I, I imagine the, the boarding action terrain will remain available after this current cycle of Gallo Dark ends. Um, yeah, so that's that's exciting. I'm I'm interested to see what they, yeah. I'm interested to see what they do next with Kill Team because this was a really cool like uh, way of playing it and like way of introducing it, and I'm just interested to see kind of what the next what the next cycle is going to be. Yeah, I, th- I think it'll be cool. I have a, a, a couple of friends that I think I would like to get into Kill Team here, and so I could give it a try myself. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think I, I really should give Kill Team more of a try. I think I'm a little bit off put by the fact that all the measurements are in colored symbols rather than in numbers, but I can adjust. Yeah. Anyway, I think um, that takes us. Oh, go ahead. Oh yeah. So one final piece of uh, news and information. 
for Midwest Conquest. Um, we are uh, yes. up to 74 players for the Grand Tournament, so we are officially a major. Um, there are still slots Woo-hoo. available, so if you um, want to sign up, go to MidwestConquest.com. Uh, we still have other events. There is a Horus Heresy event that is going to be ran by the um, Firex. The the was it taking a Firex or is it C- yeah 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 the Firex the taking group. a Firex taking a Firex group. I was going to say Siege of Firex, but I know that's not right. The taking a Firex group is back. They were at Midwest Conquest a couple years ago. Um, they're running their event. They always have excellent terrain, prize support. Like if you're interested in playing Horus Heresy, there is information on our page about that. There's a bolt action event. We've got Marvel. Uh, crisis protocol that's happening this year uh beer hammer night joust all of the fun things so go to midwestconquest.com uh, and find out about our events coming up memorial day weekend so less than a month away yep i'll be there Woohoo! yeah as far as far as the grand tournament goes there are six tickets remaining at this point yeah so i'm gonna be in and the I top 74 if- well, I imagine if those sell out, I imagine we might be able to put more up because they 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 set the limit at eighty because we're like ah we we only had fifty I mean only quote you know finger quotes only had like fifty people last year so we were like well eighty seems like a reasonable limit I would imagine that if we get if we sell out those last six tickets in the next couple of days they'll just add more so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm excited. It's it's gonna be fun to have another have a big big large event, and I I hope that this is like um, the Midwest Conquest at the end of seventh edition, where we all knew the new edition was coming, everything was changing, so the event itself was just pretty chill, um, and everybody was there to have fun and like enjoy playing, you know the the last vestiges of this previous edition, and then everything reset. Uh, so I'm hoping that this and one's gonna be that s- similar. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be, I think for the KC Cup, it's going to be maybe not, I think there might be an event between that and, I think, I'm pretty sure there's an event between that and and Show Me Showdown, but this could very well be like one of the swan songs for 9th edition in the area, so. Exactly. All right, so moving on over to Listener Mail. Yes, Listener Mail is back. Uh, As always, these letters are written by you, the listeners, and if you want to have your uh, letter read on the air, we'll tell you how at the end of the segment. Uh, So first off, we're going to go... This is actually someone who wrote in to us a few weeks ago, uh, and Richard, you were not on the show at the time, and we did not feel comfortable answering this question because it is Tyranid-related. So... So uh, this is from Christoph Erbelsheimer. Uh, he writes, Hello, preferred enemies. As a longtime listener from Austria, I think it's my turn now to give your supposedly empty mailbox a little bump. I really like your attitude towards the hobby, and I was hoping you could help me with my newest army project. After being a Dark Angels player since 3rd edition and dipping my toes a little, in, a little bit into Sisters of Battle, a still ongoing project... I would like to get into Tyranids. My idea is a heavily horde-based army to drown my enemy in masses of chitin and flesh. As I already have an idea for a custom color scheme, and he did send us a pic. I'm going to throw it into chat real quick. Of course, this is no good for any of you listening because pictures translate so well to radio. But woohoo! Uh, but he's gone with the uh, the blue ringed octopus theme, where it's like an orange, uh, orange and tan yeah. body with like the little blue. Sp- Ooh. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that can be neat. Uh, as I already have an idea for a custom 
color scheme, I am open for any high fleet, maybe leaning a little bit towards Behemoth or Hydra. For units, I think the Turvagon is pretty much a half-to unit for any swarm-based Tyranid army. Lots of gaunts, anyway. Probably a combat patrol is very useful as well, as I can use every unit in it. But that's the point I'm starting to run out of ideas. If you could give a fresh hive tyrant some breadcrumbs to follow towards world domination, I would be very thankful. All of you stay safe and have a great time. Best wishes, Kristoff. I mean, this is kind of an awkward spot because when I think he wrote this letter to us, um, we didn't know what was going to know there was a new edition. Right. <laughs> exactly. I agree. So, yeah, uh, on the... I mean, the combat patrol, yeah, the combat patrol is, is a, a good solid box, but the fact that those are going to be like the old gaunts as opposed to the the new termagants that are coming out, they will be a little bit smaller, um, but you, you could have the advantage of just being able to base them on the right size base to start with. <laughs> mm-hmm. A hive tyrant always a also a a very good option uh, from that kit, and then warriors have always been. I've always been a big proponent of warriors just for extra synaptic coverage, um, for you know not a lot of extra points. So they're good to have one or two units of, and I mean. We don't know exactly what the the you know subfaction abilities are going to be you know in the new edition, but typically, uh, yeah, Behemoth or Hydra will be typically are are going to be like the good choices for you know the horde style armies, or maybe even like Leviathan also mm-hmm. would be a, 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 an option. Strangely uh, apropos, there. given the new release. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I was going to say, definitely, like, the Leviathan box is going to have a ton of stuff that they're going to want to use for this. Because there's more, yeah. you know, more Terminagons, but then also, like, the Neurogons and some of the other, like, just all of those will will fit into what his what he's wanting to do with the Horde army. So, uh, I would definitely say right. pick up that, the starter box. <laughs> yeah. And if you're, if you're, Gonna go horde like I always think that pair of turvagons actually is not a bad idea. Yeah, I mean the more the more termagant support you can have, the more you can be spitting out and re- you know, replenishing those units, the better. Right. So a thought that I had reading this, and obviously we don't, you know, the caveats are that we obviously don't know how allies and all this stuff is going to work. But what about adding like gene stealer cults to this? Like assuming that gene that allies work similarly to how they have in previous editions, is there room in this to like if you're trying to do a horde to do to do like gene stealer cults, like to add more bodies, to add some variety? Um I mean, yes. I mean, as far as how well that's going to work, I mean, you you open up some some very different options some like you can actually get probably even more bodies on the on the table if you go with gene stealer cults because you're in a you know quote-unquote detachment again we don't know entirely how allied rules work but you know it Mm -hmm. the the hq choices for Gene Sealer cults tend to be a little cheaper overall, 
or they have cheaper options. Because that's one thing that Teardits have, have always kind of frustrated me with is, is just that their HQ choices have, have all, all, all been very expensive point wise. Mm-hmm. Like when your cheapest guy is, well, I think they, they moved the Neurothrope there. So he's probably the cheapest now, but like the prime was like 90 points. And like when you sink a lot of points into having to have an HQ that makes it. Yeah. It's not a, not a lot. It, left take, it, else. it yeah. takes, it takes points away from, from having the horde. So it, it but you know, it, it'll be different now with 10th edition. So just put the models you want on the table and, and go is, is the, the, the thing they're going for. So, right. I, yeah. Um, I would also recommend probably, probably wouldn't hurt to have like gargoyles because mm, yeah. gargoyles are small bodies that can move fast and, you know, aren't like a tend to be, they don't tend to be like a huge threat, but like being able to move around fast around the table, like, helps you get to those objectives and just position. They could be a, a, a valuable unit. So like having gargoyles oh. is, is a, is a bonus. Absolutely. And, and, uh, that's where like the, having that, uh, winged Tyranid prime could also come in very handy for like moving synapse around, assuming, you know, synapse works in a similar fashion. Right. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. But yeah, I think, you know, given the time frame, like definitely look at the launch box. But yeah, if, you, if you're going to do the, yeah, the Combat Patrol does give you a lot of gribbles. But like you said, you know, kind of find out what the base size is going to be so you can just get them built properly on the first go. Right. Yeah. Um, I also would like to point out that uh, looking at the, the Tyranid selection on uh, the GW website, the... Like, the Combat Patrol is, like, temporarily out of stock, which, I mean, okay, there's a lot of things that are temporarily out of stock, like Hive Tyrants and, like, Toxicrines and, like, tier, you know, Tyrannocytes and stuff. The Codex is now no longer available, so they are already, they're getting ready to release those new mm-hmm. Codexes. So, they, you know, the old ones are now, like, off. I, at this point, I would say Codex Tyranids officially out of print. At this point. So yep. I think it's interesting to see how quickly they're moving on that. Well, Kristoff, uh, thank you for, for being so patient and waiting for the answer. And I, I, I am sorry that the uh, Switch and additions may throw uh, a monkey wrench into the plans a bit. But hopefully that, I mean, all of those, like, it, assuming that they fill, fit the same roles that they do now, more or less, I think all of that should be pretty solid advice on where you may, may want to go. Uh, next one is from Chris Berry. Chris writes, Hi, preferred enemies. Thank you for answering my last letter in episode 274 regarding paint schemes and repurchasing completed armies previously sold. My remaining burning question was potential red flags for getting into armies of renowned style subfactions. Obviously, the easy answer to this now is 10th edition, because every army is effectively going to be an army of renown. So that I can restart fresh with Craft Worlds once 10th edition drops, somebody after uh, your heart, Dennis, 
Uh, I'm looking yeah. to purge most of my backed up army ideas by doing a series of palette cleansers with boarding patrol or kill team sized forces. For those like myself, not brave enough to continue with their main armies until the dust settles, what kits or units would you recommend as being among your favorites to build, paint, and display? Keep up the great work, and my commiserations to the world eaters and Voton players among you. Regards, Chris. Oh, I had a year with Voton. Voton, or maybe not a year, but Voton yeah. was fine. Um, I have both, and I didn't get to play either. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, I'm, I'm going to play Voton next week, so there. For Eldar, I mean, my my easy one is Banshees. They look awesome. They play great on the field. I think they're in the boarding patrol. And Jane Zarr is, I believe, with them there, and she's amazing. And they're going to be good in the next edition, because they're, they're always good, because they're Banshees. I mean, I remember the times they weren't good, but we won't talk about those. Uh, uh, past that, it, it's Eldar are very specialized, so it's, it's what units fit your play style. So that also might be a thing to wait for 5th edition, but I, I would say the Boarding Patrol would get you in the door. Did you say 5th or 10th? <laughs> 10th, I said 5th, 10th edition. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. But, um, yeah, and I, I don't think anyone here plays has played Eldar recently, so. <laughs> no, I still have my, my pile of shame staring glaring, judgingly at me. Right, I mean, uh, I want to say troop-wise, Storm Guardians are actually decent, but we won't actually have to worry about troops, I mean, they're still going to be real probably needed, but they're very flexible because you can use them for melee and, well, a little bit of shooting. The defenders are better at the shooting part. Oh, I, my always, I always come back to banshees and jet bikes, but jet bikes are a lot harder to collect. And I don't think we have a starter type box with jet bikes really. Uh, the, no, no, the, uh, the combat patrol has, uh, six jet bikes in it. Okay, so to do that, you'd probably need two combat patrols to make a real good start of a jet bike force. But those are my favorite units that I use a lot of is is jet bikes and banshees and the avatar. But and he's avatar is also a centerpiece model. And didn't he win last year the the best yes. model thing? Yes, yes, he did. So he I mean, if you're going Eldar, you can't go wrong with him. And he is a centerpiece model for both the army. And, like, display. So that's kind of would be the ones I would lean towards. Um, as far as my favorite models to... My favorite kits to build, paint, and display, I, I think my favorite ones to build have probably been crisis suits because they are so wonderfully modular. And there's so many different ways. Now, I need to look at the newer ones and see if they still have, like, the peg holes for being able to, like, make them jumping or not. I believe they do. But, like, I've always, like, the fact that you can kit them out so many different ways. They're not huge units because it's, like, you get them in boxes of three. They come, they, they get, to, they come together very quickly. They're well-designed. Um, tons of options in the box. Love crisis suits. My favorite ones to paint and display, though, have probably been Imperial Knights. Like, yeah. Like those are those are my like I have a few centerpiece models like you know uh, like I've got some chaos demons like gr like the 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 greater demons are always really cool looking but I think my favorite model to like paint and display is probably Imperial Knights because like just painting them since you can do all the armor panels separately 
it's really easy to like get into doing like any kind of paint scheme you want to do and then assemble like and then do the the underbody like the chassis separately and get all like the metallics the down the way you want them and then just like you know fit them all together at the end like that it's very easy to paint and make really you know, make it look really good and my knights have gotten a lot of like I've actually won like a couple of be- like a best in faction award for my knights, uh, so like I'm really happy with how they look, and I was able to do something that was like my own sub faction of knights. So I-, I had a lot of fun doing that. So Christ suits are my favorite to build. Painting and displaying is is knights for me. Yeah, knights is a really good choice. As far as painting, what I really liked is like the three demon Primark models that I've done so far were all super fun to paint the big display centerpiece type models. you know, they were they're. I don't even really play like thousand suns, but that Magnus model is so freaking cool. And Angron was the same way. It was so much fun to, to put together and paint. I also really liked the new eight bound models um, for world eaters because they're incredibly modular. Like all of the armor panels and stuff you can, you know, you basically do them as like, exposed chests or stuff like that or put the armor panels on and they give a lot of like different they give a completely different feel and they're just really fun to paint because skin tones especially with speed paints and stuff now paint up super easy so yeah you can get a you can get a really good variety very easily probably my favorite uh models to to build probably the the orc knob kit was it, it again has that kind of like modular sort of like it has like so many different like weapons and, and build options uh, to them. Those were always really fun to, to build and just in general, like painting and displaying it. I, I just really like building like the orc characters. Um, you know, I, I, not that long ago, finished painting Gasgull, and he is just a, a an awesome beast. Yeah, you, I, your Gasgull looked fantastic. Was, I could tell you were having fun working on him. Yeah. So, so yeah, those would those would be our favorites. And yeah, it's like I I totally understand. Like, the, if you wanted to start a fresh army, like switching switching armies, like a new edition is a an perfect opportunity. But I can also understand when you'd be like kind of hand shy about like moving all your armies forward with the new edition. I will not have that luxury. I'll be moving everything forward, but because as we've all discussed, we all have problems. <laughs> uh, uh, next letter is from Ben Dake. Ben writes, uh, hello, universal special rule podcast. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> With 10th edition on the horizon, I wanted to share my thoughts on it with you. Firstly, I am thrilled that at launch, all of the rules will be available as free downloads. I think this will be a great way to get people on board with the changes. Additionally, until recently, I didn't have a regular group to play with, so I've been on the sidelines for most of 9th edition, and by this point, it would be really overwhelming to jump in. So I'm very excited for everyone to be back at square one for the new edition. This isn't to say I don't have my concerns. Like any edition change, there's always fear that the models I have spent a lot of time building and painting will become obsolete. 
but I've also been playing on and off since 1998, so I know that rules may come and go, but cool models last forever. <laughs> I may try to squeeze in a few more games of 9th edition while, it's still, while it is being sunsetted, but I'm generally excited by what has been revealed, even if it is a bit of Stockholm Syndrome. Um, <laughs> I can't disagree with any of that, uh, honestly. Um, uh, it's not sunk cost fallacy. It's It's totally not. Um, <laughs> no, I, I am ex- I am genuinely excited for the rules changes, which we'll we'll talk about a little bit later. Like more of them, it, the design philosophy of trying to streamline and simplify the game is great. I love that. I am excited to see how long they keep that up. That's that's where my concern is because. They've said the same things every time there's a new edition. Oh, we're streamlining it. We're going to make it simpler. And then the rules bloat eventually settles in. So we'll yeah, see. It, we'll see if maybe this habit, time will be different. <laughs> this time will be different, I swear. Definition of insanity, right? Well, was, that is like, that's the, that's the textbook example of Stockholm Syndrome right there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, this time they're going to treat me better. Ooh. <laughs> but no, I, like I've seen... Uh, sentiments like this from you know multiple people like the idea it's like hey, i didn't play much in this edition or uh, i saw this edition i felt like it was just getting too complex or you know for this reason or that reason i ended up missing out and this is this seems like a good chance to to jump in and yes with the rules and data sheets being available for free at launch like it is a really good entry point so i i think there are going to be a lot of people like ben who are kind of waiting to pull the trigger and i've also been seeing a lot of like gaming outlets not just like board gaming or tabletop gaming outlets but just generic like like video gaming outlets and stuff digging into like warhammer 40k and kind of getting into like they're promoting this new edition so they're definitely trying to reach out to a larger audience with this edition so there there is you know this is a good chance for people who have been kind of on the fence to to jump in so yeah i think and yeah for those of us who are you know a long time first time right you know <laughs> the edition changed <laughs> but all right uh moving on again uh Adam Jones writes, Hello, nemeses of choice. I like that one. That's a good one. I like that one. Uh, I'm a new player getting started with a few armies. Black Templar for my son, Tyranids for my wife, and Imperial Knights for me. Just around the start of 2023. Ooh, (laughs) jumping in with all the feet. (laughs) Making slow work, getting assembled and painted. Just have eight Marines done, and I'm getting close to having about six armagers finished. Again, Knights build and paint wonderfully. Uh, finished while my wife is painting up her Tyrant effects. I'm looking forward to the 10th edition, but it looks like the Termagants and the Tyranid Combat Patrol I have in my to-do pile will have a smaller base than the new Termagants coming out, as we've discussed. Uh, I'm not sure if any of these armies will ever be used in tournament play, but I would like that option. So a few questions on basing are, how important is the base sizing? Do larger or smaller bases provide an advantage? How do I keep current on what the official base sizes are? Is it important enough to belong on the new data sheets any advice on basing or rebasing keep up the amazing work i found your podcast with episode 273 but i've enjoyed making my way back through the archive episode 239 as of this letter thanks for letting wow. a new listener feel like a longtime follower may the dice roll in your favor adam well welcome to the family adam welcome to the the preferred enemy listener family 
So yeah, basing and base sizes. This has been an issue that has been discussed a lot in the years that 40K has been played because especially in recent years, we have seen models getting like redesigned, like units get redesigned, they get new models. And more often than not, they end up on larger bases. I think the first, like, the very first one I remember being a big deal was like Terminators going from 25 mil to 40 mil bases. Cause like old Terminators were like on little slotted 25 millimeter bases. <laughs> uh, and then the big one of course was space Marines moving from 25 millimeter to 32 millimeter bases. And that, you know, and then orc boys, I think, had the same issue. And then we started getting units uh, re, you know, redesigned to be on 28.5 millimeter bases, which were new base sizes that we had never seen before. And that's been a whole thing. And so how important is the base sizing? If you are playing casually, not really at all. But if you are looking to go to a tournament, it can be very important. Larger, smaller bases providing an advantage. As we yes. were kind of discussing... Yeah, as we were discussing with, like, Termagants, uh, board control, like, how much of the board you are taking up to prevent your opponent from being able to move through is definitely a thing. And say, so if you have a larger base, you can be in melee with more things. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And then you're closer to objective markers. Yeah, yeah. Or if you have smaller bases, you can have more people involved in a combat. Mm -hmm. So yep. there's advantages both ways. Right. Uh, and it's, you know, long been kind of an argument. It's like the traditionally, tra the traditional approach that Games Workshop has taken, at least with 40K, has been whatever base the model came with is the legal base size. Like that is the quote unquote official base size. Uh, they've changed. <laughs> Yeah, and that gets confusing when you have a unit that has been redesigned, like Eldar Guardians. Eldar Guardians were on 25 mil bases for decades, <laughs> and then they redid yeah. them a, a year or two ago, and they put them on 28.5 millimeter bases. Now, technically, that's the official base size, but the ones you had before, well, those were the bases they came with, so yeah, those are technically legal. Now in Age it's funny that of the two of the two main games the Games Workshop has, because you've got Age of Sigmar and Warhammer 40,000. Age of Sigmar, when it first dropped, they did not have a base policy at all, because a lot of the bases were old square bases from fantasy. And but they're <laughs> like, well, they're now we're releasing them on round bases, but basing doesn't matter. It's whatever. And it was like they did not seem to care at all. And, of course, that did not really end up flying with the community. So, a few years ago, they actually came out with a PDF that lists, like, here are the official base sizes for every unit in the game. Mm -hmm. It's not on the data sheet. It is in a separate document, but it is there. It is available. We do not have an equivalent for Warhammer 40k. And that even gets more confusing when you have some vehicles are on bases and some vehicles are not. Uh, a lot of the tracked vehicles do not have bases. Hovering vehicles do have bases, but also in those cases you can measure from the hull, which is more complication. And then you have things like the Chaos Defiler, which really should have a base and has never had a base. Or, uh, Dennis, you are dealing with the struggle right now of building a Revenant Titan, and it does not have a base. It does not have an official yeah. base size at all. Right. I, I, my two stories on that is um, 
Slanesh Seekers. They originally only came on the square bases. And then they got long, thin, round bases. And then they changed to an oval base. And I've bought ones of each type. And so I've got three different bases. Technically, the way I've seen worded, at least for the U.S. Opens and not, the bases are supposed to be the most recent bases that were published now is how the, I've seen the, the stance. And so I would need to get all of my seekers onto that big oval one. Or not big, but I mean, an oval base rather than the small, thin, rounded bike base. And yeah, Rob, the, the Revenant Titan has given me lots of issues, which I'll get into in hobby progress because it did not have a base size. So I had to look online and there was a couple consensus ones people leaned towards. And then, um, I found some place that said, yeah, go with this one. Cause you can actually fit it into a, a KR case. I'm like, sweet. I like KR cases. And so that's what I'm going with. It might not be the right one, but because there's not an official one, I'm going to make it work. <laughs> Yeah. To make it more complicated as well, like there's, they're obviously posting updates and stuff for the old world uh, that's going to relaunch here eventually. And they've talked about base sizes in that game and that they're changing them. And like they're, and they've talked about putting out a document similar to like what they have for Age of Sigmar. So nothing, nothing official like that. They've not said anything about that for 40K, but it does make me wonder if at one point, at what point, if it's the only game that doesn't have a base size list, they just put something out. Yeah, I think they're going to have to at some point, and especially as we talk, some of the rules we're going to talk about later. I absolutely, like, even with something like the objective controlled score, like how mm. many models you can get within that range and their total objective contro- control total will matter. And so, yeah, it's kind of important to get the base sizes right. I do think eventually we're going to have to have a document that states the official base sizes because right now there there is no equivalent. Or, is, or is it maybe important put it on to put on the data sheet? Well, yeah, and it's like, is that important enough to put on the data sheet? I think yes. I, I I would like to, although with as streamlined as they kind of have the da- the new data sheets, I don't know where it would fit on there, but. Yeah. Barring that, an official document, an official guide that just says, like, model base size, like, faction model base size would be sufficient. Like, make that a free download so everybody has it. Everybody has it for reference. That's also very good for kit bashers because that's another struggle is if you want to build a custom model, not only do you need to know roughly how big the model is, the original model is, so you're not gaming for, you know, not modeling for advantage, but you also need to know what size base is the appropriate base for that unit. Okay, so so here's what we do. When they print the data cards, they have another insert with each card that's like punch out circles of the base sizes for them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, for that final question, any advice on basing or rebasing? Um, I have, (laughs) I have rebased actually a fair number of models. I've rebased all my, like I rebased all my chaos space Marines, all my death guard. I've rebased, like I've rebased my sisters, which that was fun because those were resin bases. I couldn't just like, I had to actually break on metal models on metal models. Yeah. That was not fun i've rebased uh my plague bears for like my my chaos demons uh that was very tricky because 
they were glued they like they were glued directly to their bases i had to very carefully break them off i think i only ended up losing like a couple of toes and i was able to repair them but like that's always depending on how fragile the models are it can be really tricky um it just pet like a lot of it's going to depend on their feet and how careful you are with like a an exacto knife or something like that how much you like if you're fine just destroying the old bases i sometimes i've used trimmer like clippers where i'll just like clip around where their feet attach to the base and then very carefully kind of shave the bottoms of the like the what's left of the base off of the feet uh it i mean it can be tricky it can be a little harrowing i've rebased because like you i had seekers on those lozenge bases like the thin lozenge bases and i've rebased them onto ovals that was also a bit harrowing i think i broke a couple of feet off at the ankles but i was able to like with plastic cement get them put back together but and the problem with the seekers is they only had that one connection point for a lot of them so Hopefully the model yeah. show basing will have more than one connection point. Uh, given what GW has been doing lately, no. No, they will not. <laughs> It'll have the tiniest of connection points. They will they will laugh in the face of physics. But I will say, if you have models that are not based yet and you know a base change is coming, hold off if you can. Um, barring that... Because I know the old, like, for example, for your Termagants, they are on 25 mil bases currently. They are going to be on what looks like 32 mil bases, very possibly. If you want to go ahead and base them now, there are companies that make uh, extender rings that you can clip around the bases. And specifically 25 to 32 mil because they developed them so people wouldn't have to rebase their space marines. Uh, those do work. Uh, you can usually get them in like large lots so you could use them to rebase those termagants without rebasing them because they'd still be on the original base. And that those extenders will actually get them to the right size. Uh, but be sure you know what that size is. We are not going to know that probably until late June. So you may want to hold off on those or go ahead and do it and, you know, be very careful with it. I think termagants tend to have like hoof like feet. Right, Richard? Yeah. Yeah, they do. So so they shouldn't be too bad to break off. Just be careful, especially around like ankles and things like that. But Hopefully, you should be able to 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 repair anything that gets lost. But I mean, the the biggest problem is, and it has been a while since I've messed with any uh, termagants. But like, I know all of the ones that I have, which I think is still like the quote unquote current set. They're on slaughter bases, so they they actually do have like one tiny little like contact point with that slot. And so they're going to be not easy to rebase. Mm. Okay. Yeah. If they're on slots, that's a problem. Yeah. Also, we have like really good updated pictures of the new Termagants, like for the, the new box set. And uh, guess what? Every single one of them has one contact point, one hoof on the ground. Oh, yay. <laughs> I, Adam, you, you have our condolences <laughs> with your new mission. You may want to hold out on the, hold off on these until you I have would, the new base sizes. 
That would be my recommendation of hearing all this. Yeah. 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 <laughs> all right. So, yeah, Adam, base size is important. We don't have an official base size list. Hopefully we will in the future. And uh, rebasing is a thing. Avoid it if at all possible. But sometimes, you know, you just got to just got to brave it. All right, and now our final letter is from James Gibson, and James writes, Hello, preferred enemies. I heard you needed some listener mail, and I last wrote back in 7th, so I thought I'd write in with a little challenge for you. You quite often (laughs) will do a list review and make suggestions about what additions may be made to improve it. The challenge this time is I'm giving you the list of units that are painted up and ready to go for my Death Guard, and your mission is to give me a rundown of what I should include for a small game, let's say 1,000 points, and how you would play them. The catch? This will be my first game of 10th edition after skipping 9th because of wanting to keep my Nurgle worship to in-game rather than out-of-game, and none of us know quite how that's going to play out yet. Options include a Lord of Contagion, Malignant Plaguecaster, 3 Death Shroud, 5 Blight Lords, 10 Plague Marines, 7 Plague Marines... 10 cults with auto guns, 10 cultists with close combat weapons and pistols, a hell brute, and a fetid blight drone. And as we know, the demon summoning will be an option. We'll also throw in a spoilpox scrivener, 10 plague bears, and three bases for of nurglings as options. I'll report back once I get a chance to play, however long that takes, and let you know how your predictions for how units may function or perform stacked up against reality, and also how my inf- infamously inept generalship was able to implement any strategies that you can outline. It'll probably be against Custodes, but I'm sure my last 40k victory must have been back in 5th edition or so, so even very general tips may be of help. Hope you all have fun with the first games of the new edition, James Gibson. Uh, James, or uh, Kevin, sounds like James is in your camp of uh, my last victory oh, was in 5th edition. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've won games since then. It's just, it was with my Tau. Like, I went all of 5th edition without winning a game with my Tau. <laughs> Technically all of 4th edition, but I only played like three or four games of 4th. <laughs> but how do we build a list for an edition that's not here? So I dropped all of the points. Now granted, this is using ninth edition points. So, you know, this may all completely change. But based off of what he provided, it comes out to 1,200 points. So there's really not a lot of like flexibility we have. So using existing ninth edition points, trying to get to 1,000 points to play a small game there's basically two paths that i kind of see if you want the simpler options i would say take everything on your list drop the death shroud terminators which is 150 points and the malignant plague caster which is 90 points that gets you a little bit under a thousand it gets you like 970 and you can fill that with with weapons, because I don't know like what specific weapon options he has on the Terminators or on the Plague Marines, so I'm kind of given a little bit of extra space. What that does there is that gives you Lord of Contagion, which goes with your Terminators, a couple units of Cultists, a couple units of Plague Marines, and the Bloat Drone Hellbrute to basically, like, there's no, not really any subtlety there. It's just you line up, you you march across the table, you you shoot at things, you're tough. Hopefully they don't kill you. Like, it's very simple. You're cutting out some of the more difficult things, like the Death Shroud Terminators have some, we have some weirdish bodyguard rules. The Plague Caster cuts out the psychic phase, so you're just playing kind of like straight up, march across the table, shoot things, assault things, you know, go for that. Since you mentioned playing Custodes, the other option that I would say is to maybe drop the cultus and the bloat drone, which also frees up about 200 points 
and again, gives you a little bit of wiggle room to play there. But everything else, and that gives you more Terminators, more elite infantry to take on Custodes elite infantry, and you add in the playcaster to like be able to do some psychic shenanigans against Custodes. But, I mean, that, there's beyond like the general stuff there, I don't know if there's really much more I can say because we don't know enough about the new edition. But I think there's a couple different ways. You can go more the elite infantry unit with more Terminators or drop some of the Terminators and go with more of like a horde mentality, uh, both of which are absolutely within Death Guard's play style. <laughs> yeah, it's like I the ones I'm like most interested in in seeing dropped would be the cultists, because like yep. th- at least as, as they normally run. And again, we have no idea how faction rules are going to work. Um, yeah, and that that makes things difficult because, like, right now, cultists don't benefit from any of the Death Guard faction rules, so it's kind of hard to figure out how they're going to to fit in with all of this. But uh, and if you mentioned playing against custodes, they're not going to be useful. Like, they're just chaff at that point. They are going to right. die very quickly, very easily, and do, they're they're only going to be there for objectives. So it's like if you know you're going to be playing custodes, you want to try to tweak this towards your opponent. Dropping the cultists and like the bloat drone because the bloat drone, I assume you have the one with that's just the the spewers. That's also not going to do much against custodes. So drop those load up on more of the heavier infantry with your Terminators, and you'll have a better shot at beating Custodes. Without, obviously, I didn't include any of the the demon stuff, because, like, if you haven't played in a while, we don't know how the demon summoning rules are going to work. I would just focus on Death Guard, and I think there's enough here with the Death Guard stuff to be able to get a feel for the faction without adding in any of the demon stuff. You can sprinkle that in as we get more rules on allies and stuff like that later, but for now, I was focusing on the Death Guard. And dropping everything into Battlescribe, it came out to 1,203 points without any of the upgrades. So it's like you have about 200 points that you could drop to get approximately to 1,000. And like I said, there's a couple ways to do it. You drop the Playcaster, drop the Death Shroud Terminators. They have more complicated rules, finger quotes, than some of the other units. Or if you know that you're going to be playing against Custodes, like you could drop the Cultists and the Bloat Drone. And that gives you a, a, a different feel to the army and might actually be a better matchup against what you're playing. I, the other thing I would say is you don't necessarily have to run full squads. If you drop, take everything he has on just the Death Guard list and you drop the two cultist units entirely, but you only run two units of five Plague Marines, that comes at, at 970. That's also true, too. And that would give you... because. Like, I'm going to guess the Lord of Contagion will probably be a leader who can join probably any of these. You'll, you, He's probably best with either the Blight Lord or Death Shroud Terminators. Um, we don't know if Malignant Plaguecaster will be able to join any units or if he will be a, uh, like, if he'll be a leader or if he'll just be kind of like a lone operative character. I'm assuming Plague Marines will have a decent operative control or objective control. Death or uh, Blight Lords may have a pretty good objective control if they play similar to how they've played uh, the rest of this edition. Um, but that would give you, like, I imagine Plague Marines and Terminator is going to be hard to shift, so they're good for objectives. Yeah. You've got the Fetid Bloat Drone, which actually has a little bit of speed and will provide you, depending on how it's equipped and how points work out, either firepower or melee ability. The Hellbrute will give you some firepower. Uh, and this would also let you play around with things that 
all various aspects of the game because you'll have a psyker, so you'll get to play around yeah. with however new psychic rules work. You'll have at least one leader. You'll have a vehicle that will probably have the ability, like, will probably degrade once it gets to a certain number of wounds. Like, it will allow you to interact with all the various parts of the system with, or, you know, all the various new rules without being, like, too heavy and, like, too complex. Like I said, like, I agree with you not bringing in the demons. I think that's... Yeah, that's the right call. Um, and I don't like cultists in Death Guard, but we also, as as we have all pointed out, we yeah. don't know. We have no idea. Like cultists might actually be useful in a Death Guard army. Don't know. But yeah. that would be like to slim it down to just like the Death Guardiest Death Guard things. I would drop the cultists, run five man Plague Marine squads. You're at 970 points, assuming ninth edition points apply. Throw in a couple of special weapons into those. You know play around with the options to get the points right to about a thousand and game wise like you will hold up better against custodes because your stuff will be more resilient especially those terminators Mm -hmm. we don't know how you're going to affect against custodes toughness we we don't know because we also don't know what custodes are going to look like but i think you will outmodel custodes they'll be golden i'm sure they will be (laughs) I mean, maybe there are alternate paint schemes out there, but you will you will outnumber them even with only like ten plague marines on the board and eight terminators. Like your terminators will be about as resilient as they are, and you will still have more models than they do. And uh, at a thousand points, I mean the like the Hellbrute will actually get some work done. The fetid blight drone, depending on how its weapons work, could be quite useful. So. Yeah, I, that w- that's kind of where I would lean. But yeah, I would strip away anything that you, that is not going to le- lend towards being resilient. Because like, as you said, those cultists are just going to die to custodes. Like they'll, cust- like Dennis, you've had they that won't, They won't even be on the other side of custodes. Yeah. Custodes are very sturdy. They won't even be a speed bump like that. And it won't even be one of those, like, if it's if it's worked the way they've worked in the past... It's not even going to be like, oh, well, they'll tie him up for a turn or two. It's like, no, three custodes will cut through them in a, in a round of combat and move on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Uh, so, so James, th- that's our, those are our recommendations for uh, building a list, sight unseen of new rules and new points values. Uh, get, you know, see what you can do with that. Uh, and those basic strategies of just, you know, it, you know, I was, you know, it's like hold objectives, implacable advance forward, just because you are, you are tough and slow and uh, they are going to be tough. And I think slightly faster than you, but also slow. Um, there's going to be a lot of staring at each other until you get in range. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but hopefully it goes well, let us know how the game goes and how, how far off we were. Uh, and, we will know as we, you know, once launch day gets here and we can actually look at the rules and then we can decide, oh God, we were totally off. <laughs> Cause my guess is right. that's where we'll be. But, <laughs> but yeah, let us know how it goes. Uh, and if you have a letter, you would like us to answer on the air, whether it's army suggestions, uh, which we are doing blindly right now, or uh, information on like game mechanics, hobby questions, anything of that, any kind of question you want to send to us that is theoretically vaguely 40k related. Uh, there are three good ways to get it to us. Uh, first is you can email us. So we are our email addresses are our first names at preferred enemies.com. So Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at preferred 
preferredenemies.com or our first names, one word, at preferredenemies.com. Uh, second is Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash preferredenemies. Uh, you can like us there, follow us, and keep up with what we're doing and when new episodes drop. Third is on Mastodon. We are at warhammer.social slash at preferredenemies. Uh, and so uh, you can follow us on any of those three sort places uh submit questions and uh, we will collect as many as we can get them in the hopper and get through as many as we can an episode the hopper is now once again empty so if you want to have your letter read on the air now's the perfect time to get it in uh also we have a patreon if you want to help support the show and keep us cost neutral because you basically you as the listeners are now paying effectively covering our costs for hosting our recording service you help us repair mics when they go out um we we really appreciate all the support you have given us over the years, uh, and our the our Patreon, which is a patreon.com slash preferred enemies, is an online tip jar. None of our episodes are locked behind a paywall. Uh, we're gonna see what we can do with like when tenth edition hits. I keep kicking around the idea of doing a Discord. I also know Discord means we're gonna have to have somebody moderating that on a regular basis, so we'll have to figure out what that looks like. Uh, but. Uh, that is something we are we are considering. So, uh, but if but even if you just want to help support the show, it doesn't have to be a whole lot. Even if it's just a dollar a month, uh, a, enough people do that, it adds up. And it, like I said, it covers our costs and allows us to keep doing this without digging into a bank account. This show is completely listener supported, and we are, thank you so much for that. So again, that's patreon.com slash preferred enemies if you want to help support the show. Uh, anyway, we're going to go ahead and take a break for our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to be digging into the rules parts of the reveals of 10th edition over the last couple of weeks. See you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them. We paint them. We love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the Battle Mats from Game Mat. They're professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a Game Mat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding G-board portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. 
Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back. And that means it's time for our main topic, which is our look at more of the rules that have been released for 10th edition over the last couple of weeks. Now, when we last talked about the rules they were teasing, they had left us with a uh, a bit of a cliffhanger on like, who says aggressors can't can't ride in a land raider and the first bit of new of rules they uh released did not address that because they decided to give us an, uh, an article about the new phases of the game but we'll get we will get to transports eventually it is it is on the list but but instead uh April 18th, they gave us an article, the new edition of Warhammer 40,000 makes all the phases count. Now, they had mentioned when they first started talking about 10th edition that things like the psychic phase were gone, and the morale phase was getting moved to the command phase. Uh, So the term structure is still the same. One player still takes first turn to maneuver and fight with all the forces at their disposal, and the second player does the same. So this confirms we are not going to an alternating activation system. Uh, this is still called the battle round, but seven phases have now become five. Both players will now contest each one to the fullest. Uh, phase structure is broadly the same. It is command phase, movement phase, shooting phase, charge phase, fight phase. So what's changed? The psychic phase and the morale phase are now no more. It doesn't mean they, they are gone. It just means their effects are there. They've just been compressed into other phases. Uh, for the psychic phase, uh, they had mentioned in the past that... Uh, Psychic powers uh, were going to be rolled into the appropriate phases where they would actually affect things. And they said for some players like Thousand Suns, Grey Knights, and Eldari, this old-style psychic phase was a Technicolor Carnival of Empyrean Delights. For others, especially Tau and Necrons, I feel this. It was often 10 minutes spent watching your opponent make a bunch of mysterious 2d6 rolls and remove models accordingly. Could, could you imagine if you were a player that only played Tau? or Necrons, or World Eaters, or Sisters, and just didn't get to do the Psychic Phase at at any point? That would suck. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I have no idea what that's like at all. At all. (laughs) That was often unfun and awkward to play around, so now Psychic Powers are used throughout the other phases. Peering into the future for tactical insights, that's command phase ability. Paralyzing foes with his hypnosis, fight phase. Tossing around Eldritch Lightning, that's a ranged attack used in the shooting phase. And so they did give us the data sheet for the Terminator Librarian with the weird paint job they we talked about earlier. Um, smite is now just a ranged weapon. Uh, each time he does smite, you can choose to either manifest a controlled mental burst or a recklessly powerful psychic onslaught that may backfire thanks to the ha- hazardous weapon ability, which is the way plasma used to work. It would, if you overcharged and rolled a one, bad things would happen. Um, we don't know exactly what hazardous does, if it just does damage or if it kills the model. So, uh, so for example, Smite, it does have the psychic tag. We don't know what that does. We do not know what the psychic tag does on a, on a weapon, other than it indicates that it is a psychic effect. I'm assuming it's to mark certain weapons as psychic or certain attacks mm-hmm. as psychics for th- purposes of, like, Sisters of Silence, who would be immune to them, things like that. But we don't know if there's any extra rules attached to that. Well, and they mentioned, you know, it's a ranged attack used alongside any shooting attack for regular guns. So I would imagine there's probably going to be some rule that's like, you can shoot with all of your ranged weapons 
and one psychic ranged weapon or something like that, or some limitation on it. So you can still, for this example with the librarian, shoot your storm bolter and also do a smite. Yeah, and they do say before selecting targets for the weapon, select one of its profiles. So you can't you can't do both smites. They are both uh they're D6 attacks, three up ballistic skill, uh strength five for the regular, strength six for the focused. AP1 for the regular, AP2 for the focused, D3 damage each. The focused one is also has devastating wounds, which is mortal wounds on a six. Six is to wound. I don't, I, th- it may, I think probably six is a critical hit on wounds. So six is to wound were uh, mortals. And then it has hazardous. So with D6 attacks and rolling a one is bad for you, that definitely makes that a risky play. But with the extra strength and extra AP, it might be worth it. I'm going to say that uh, denying psychic abilities is a thing of the past because of how his psychic hood works. Psychic hood, while this model is leading a unit, models in that unit have feel no pain for up against psychic attacks. So now, instead of the psychic hood letting you shut down the power entirely, it just makes any unit he is attached to, because he does have the leader ability, ignore just have a chance to ignore the wounds entirely. Yeah, I, that that plays into like the streamlining and like contesting things like in more interactive play style like that they've been talking about. So yeah, that would make sense to me that it's just some of that stuff just gets moved over to saves. And the fact that these attacks actually have AP also means that if you are a non-psychic army, you have a chance to actually resist some of the damage. So that's nice. Uh, and then his he has an ability called Veil of Time, uh, but it's it's just always on. While this model is leading a unit, weapons that equipped by models in that unit have the sustained hits one ability, which is an extra hit on sixes to hit, on critical hits. So... Uh, he's not throwing around buffs to everybody on the table. Or he, it's like if he is attached to a unit, he gives that unit makes that unit a little bit better, and he has psychic uh, he has psychic attacks himself. That's that's he's a buff character. That's fine. I think you know that's it's pretty easy to manage. That makes me hope warlocks are going to be a lot like that because I kind of miss the days where they were just attached to all my squads. Yeah, and I, it does make me feel sad. Like librarians aren't going to get to do quite as many cool things on the table as they could before but also how many psychic abilities did you see used that were like not just smite or a variation of smite other than maybe like warp time for movement abilities and they had to like really start nerfing that down to keep it from being broken Uh, i still liked fortune and guide i think eldar had more support type yeah Mm-hmm. Once, no, they did, and even for the the Votan, I was I liked using the command point one a lot, and the one that gave me extra toughness and feel no pain. So I guess I prefer my psychers be support wise, right? <laughs> and they still will have that a little bit, but they're going to have to be attached to units most likely to do that. Also, we get to see our first non Space Marine non uh, Tyranid data sheet. We get to see the Weird Boy data sheet. So to kind of get an idea, uh, Weird Boy, six movement, five toughness, five up save, uh, four wounds, seven up leadership, OC1. Uh, he does not have any guns or non-psychic abilities. In fact, he instead he has the Edbanger psychic ab- attack, which also has precision. So I'm assuming he can target leaders. 
Uh, 24 inch range, one attack, four ballistic skills, six strength, minus three AP, one damage. And then his melee weapon, a weird boy staff, also psychic. And also point out the force weapon on the librarian, which there is not force sword, force staff, force sword, like force axe. It is just force weapon, just generic profile for all force weapons. But these are also psychic. So I'm assuming you don't have to roll anything to cast it. But it does mean that if you have a defense against psychic attacks, they will be less effective. But his Weird Boy Staff, uh, three attacks, weapon skill three up, strength eight, AP minus one, D3 damage. So uh, he will smash around Marines and, and lesser combatants with that pretty well. Um, he does have Deadly Demise D3, so he will explode. He has the chance of exploding, which is appropriate for a Weird Boy. Wa Energy. While this model is leading a unit, he does have the leaders. Uh, so uh, I'm assuming, like, we were talking about, like, the Malignant Plaguecaster. Uh, in the last segment, uh, I'm assuming he will also be, have the leader ability and will do something for units he is attached to. Uh, while this model is leading a unit, add one to the strength and damage characteristic of this model's Edbanger weapon for every five models in that unit, rounding down. But while that unit contains ten or more models, that weapon has the hazardous ability. So if he's leading a, a, a squad of 30 boys, that is a strength 12 like damage seven ed banger but he also runs the risk of blowing himself up when he when he casts it which he should i mean that that is totally fine totally worth it and then they uh we we see a return of the jump some things are are never gone the jump psychic once per turn at the end of your movement phase one weird boy for your army can use this ability if it does roll a d6 on a one that weird boy's unit suffers d6 mortal wounds on a two up remove <laughs> this weird boy's unit from the battlefield and set it up anywhere on the battlefield that is more than nine inches horizontally away from all enemy models so you get to redeploy via deep strike although you may it's the weird boys unit so if he's leading the unit it doesn't necessarily he doesn't necessarily take the damage it could just be he kills some of the boys that go with him yep they they don't quite make it through the warp portal right squish <laughs> but i i i kind of like how so we're getting a, you know an idea of how like a more active support you know not just a passive ability but an active thing uh casting is kind of just worked into you roll to see if the ability goes off but it's defined inside that ability as opposed to like the veil of time for librarians which is just kind of always on so it sounds like casting is pretty much gone perils are gone that's worked into things being hazardous if you know if the ability is strong enough it's hazardous so we like we have we seen the end of perils of the warp that would be weird i mean that's been a part of the game for so long yeah I don't know that I'd like losing perils. I, I will say, like, we've seen, you know, Tyranid data sheets and Shadow in the Warp is not a, like, ability listed on their their data sheets, so... Right, I that think... That bumps yeah. me out, too. Well, one thing I have heard, uh, I think they mentioned, was that, like, while Synapse is their faction ability shadow and the warp may be a detachment ability like certain like yeah. a certain detachment would give uh, you shadows in the warp so it's right. not yeah, may not be gone sense. but but not every tyranid army may use it right and we don't know what it's going to do it could be the same rule but it could be you know same name but it could do something radically different so 
It's like, you, you know, it, nope, it'd be nope. anything it's, it's for, the same. It doesn't do anything. It, <laughs> 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 but I mean, it could be anything from like all psychic abilities are hazardous or minus one to hit with all psychic, you know, psychic attacks or um, you can't use psychic <clears throat> ability. You know, it's like there's because it's a tag. There's a lot of ways they can interact with it. We don't know what that would look like. But it, I mean, theoretically, it right. could do something. <laughs> yeah. All right. Then we get uh, talking about the morale phase. Morale is even simpler. That all gets sorted in your command phase when you take battle shock tests for any units that have taken losses. Battle shock tests are super simple. Roll a two d six for every unit that's below half strength. That means they're a squad with less than half their starting models or a single model with less than half their starting wounds. So single model units will finally have to care about leadership. That is nice to see. That is something that has been missing from the game for a long time. So maybe Eternal Warrior will be back who you can ignore that for the Phoenix Lords. I mean, maybe. (laughs) Possibly. You'll need to roll equal to or above your new leadership characteristic. If you fail, that unit suffers some nasty penalties until your next turn. So in Battleshock, in this step, you must take a Battleshock test for each of your units on the battlefield that's below half strength. To do so, roll 2d6. If the bat result is greater than or equal to the best leadership characteristic in that unit, so leaders still are important, um, that test is passed. Otherwise, the test is failed, and until the start of your next command phase, the unit is battle-shocked. While the unit is battle-shocked, the objective control characteristic of all its models is zero, so it cannot hold an objective anymore. If it falls back, you must take a desperate escape test for every model in that unit. We are going to talk about that possibly in a little bit. We'll get some details on that. And its controlling player cannot use stratagems to affect that unit. With this change, morale is no longer just a casualty multiplier like Psychic Powers. Battleshock now impacts every other phase of the game, shaping how you use your units and rewarding players who can keep their army in fighting order. I like this. I actually really like this. Oh yeah, no, I think it's a lot simpler. Like it 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 structurally makes more sense within the way that all the other roles work within the game. And it's pretty devastating. It impacts several things. You can't use stratagems, you, you can't really fall back, you know, etc. Objective control goes to zero, but it doesn't say things like you still can move, you can still fight, you can still shoot. So it's like you're 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 hurt, but you're not just like you're not just pulling models off the table for no reason. And you're still able to do things. You know, you're still able to do mm-hmm. something with the unit. Right. But I'm like, the, for example, that Screamer Killer, where it's like, I, if I hit you with this attack, I can force you to make a Battleshock test at minus one. Like, that could be the difference between controlling an objective or not. Right. Yeah, like, now, granted, yeah. it would be on your turn, but it also depends on, like, when are we going to score stuff, or, like, hit somebody with a Battleshock test and then charge them with somebody else and they can't fall back, or something like that. It's like, or they can't use a stratagem to affect them. You know, that's like, there's some tactical play in there where that actually matters, and being able to trigger that outside of the command phase is pretty useful. Yeah, for sure. But also, as you said, like, you know, we've we talked about, you know, a couple episodes ago, like not having to pull off extra models where it's not, you know, because like that was always the problem with like low, like mobs of units generally had low leadership and it just meant every attack potentially did twice as much damage because, oh, look, half the guys run away. Yay. That's that's not great either. (laughs) And it also, as you said, it doesn't shut the unit down and keep them from doing anything. They're just 
less effective at doing what they need to do on the battlefield, but they can still fight. They can still move. They're just, they're not going to take objectives. They're, you're like, if you had a, a clutch play, you were going to use a stratagem on them for too bad. Like, like one of the examples, armor of contempt is a space Marine stratagem. Well, too bad. That squad cannot be more resilient against gunfire now. Tough. So it's just like, it can be devastating. You use the right ways, but it doesn't completely shut your opponent yeah. down. So I, that's good. It allows your units to still do things. So that's, that is a better version of that while still having a palpable effect on the table. All right. Then this moves us forward to the next day. And as promised, transport rules, or at least some of them. Uh, so, uh, some of the things they mentioned in the past, only certain units were allowed to bundle out of a transport on the same turn it had moved, presumably due to the strict health and safety regulation at this point in history. <laughs> Turns out battle is not OSHA compliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Now, any embarked unit is free to hop out once a transport is moved, provided the vehicle didn't advance or fall back. They can also shoot, but can't charge unless they disembark before the vehicle moves. Uh, this is a major improvement for mechanized armies like Tau, Astra Militarum, Eldari, and Ar power armor clad warriors of all varieties you still can't embark and disembark on the same turn but you are not like sitting there waiting for a turn like i've moved into position now i can get out or like next turn i can get out no it lets you actually move and re- and deploy them out immediately so that's really good yeah um in the past certain open top vehicles allowed the troops inside to fire out and this has been consolidated into a universal firing deck x rule i think we talked about this a little bit last episode but they have confirmed it you can select up to X models embarked within. Then for each of those embarked models, you can select one ranged weapon that embarked model is equipped with until the transport model has resolved all of its attacks. It counts as being equipped with all the weapons you selected in this way, in addition to its other weapons. So now that ballistic skill is attached to the weapon listing and not to the unit firing, this actually works really well because it's no mm-hmm. longer like well it counts as having the weapon okay well i guess i use the vehicle's ballistic skill no you're just going to use the gun's ballistic skill like the ballistic skill that's listed on it on the data sheet this opens up again more design space to play around with and they do specifically call out the fact that if the vehicle is getting a buff everybody shooting out of the vehicle gets the same buff and an example they give is the orc mech uh has the mechaniac uh, rule at the end of your movement phase you can select one friendly orcs vehicle model within three inches of this model that vehicle model regains up to d3 lost wounds and until the start of your next movement phase each time that vehicle makes an attack add one to the hit roll so now the fact that a battle wagon has firing deck 22 <laughs> yeah that's nice yeah the the previous open top vehicle is gonna be big <laughs> yeah <laughs> but this is a nice consistent way to do it <laughs> And I think we might go back to seeing rhinos get some use because they're not just metal boxes anymore. Because I remember the original tactical squad, you'd have your heavy weapon, your special weapon, and you mm-hmm. could still fire them outside the rhino. And you can still fire them outside the rhino now with this. I kind of like it. Yes. No, I, I do like this. And it also does mean like, hey, if the vehicle advances every, you know, like if you you can fire your assault weapons out of it because it it's considering that how the vehicle moved, not worrying about like the weird state of if the person inside was in a vehicle and it moved like this, and the person move, acts as though the ve- they had moved with the vehicle. No, it's just like treat it as if it's a vehicle gun. 
So if the vehicle moves, if the vehicle advances, then you can fire your assault weapons. If the vehicle stands, stays put, your heavy weapons get plus one to hit. You know, nice, nice, consistent, easy to rule. Again, falling under the simplified, consolidated, but still having a similar effect and having this as just a consistent rule so we don't have to have a whole bunch of different vehicles with the same rule printed over and over and over again, different, slightly different variations Love to see it. Um, some vehicles circumvent the rules entirely with special abilities, such as fast movers like the Impulsor and the Torox, which can disembark troops even after advancing. Uh, units that can disembark from this transport after it is advanced. Units that do so count as having made a normal move that phase and cannot declare a charge, but can otherwise act normally. Uh, the Land Raider got its assault ramp back, meaning you can charge after <laughs> after you get out of it, which that's nice to see return because... A, I, that gave the Land Raider a reason to exist, and then for a long time, it's just like, well, it's an extremely heavy block of plastic. You know, it's an extremely expensive block of plastic that just holds more people. Uh, minus a couple of exceptions, Space Marine transports no longer care whether a Primaris unit is riding in the back or not. Uh, they give the Repulsor as an example. It can hold up... This model has a transport capacity of 12 Adeptus Astartes infantry models, each jump pack, Wolfen, Gravis, or Terminator model. So that's pretty much tells us that all, all Space Marine chapters are going to use the same book as a base. Takes up a space of two models, and each Centurion model takes up the space of three models. Um, so, I mean, pretty much standard, but it is nice that we can put Firstborn in there. Uh, they do have mm-hmm. a footnote at the end that says the Reiner, Razorback, and Impulsor are still specialized for certain squad types, and many larger models like Terminators and Gravis Armored Space Marines still have their own restrictions, so probably no Terminators and Rhinos. We'll see if uh, ri- if Primaris can fit into Rhinos. We don't know yet. I hope so. Like, that's... It made no sense to, like, limit them to just the hover vehicles and stuff, so... Oh, it made total I, sense I hope that they could sell more hover vehicles. Sure. I just, I hope that they're, 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 they've definitely been moving away from a lot of the distinctions between Primaris and Firstborn, so hopefully that's one of them that goes, where it's like, no, nah, they can, they can ride in a Rhino, Firstborn can ride in, a, ride in an Impulsor if we need to, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. We're all fine now. <laughs> Um, we get to see another another guard uh, vehicle. The Chimera has the mobile command vehicle. In your command phase, one officer model embarked within this transport can issue orders even though it's not on the battlefield when doing so measure distances to and from this transport. We've seen variations on this rule in the past. It's nice to see they're maintaining it. Um, the Falcon Grav Tank. We get our first little hint at uh, more like Eldari vehicle rules. In, has the fire support ability in your shooting phase after this model is shot select one enemy unit hit by one or more of those attacks until the end of the turn each time a friendly model that disembarked from this transport this turn makes an attack that targets that enemy unit you can re-roll the wound roll and one of the reasons they bring that up is every transport now has its own place within the roster be it as fire support fast redeployment or even a speedy getaway vehicle uh, so uh, they wanted to actually give the falcon something to do Besides just be a lackluster transport. Oh, it was. Yeah, you're not wrong. (laughs) I enjoyed it being a a drop pod. Yeah, but they had to like really change, like change its role. And so like they're trying to continue like giving everything a niche that is gives it a reason to exist and not just be a a lackluster replacement. Yeah. You know, something that can be easily replaced by something else. 
like overall, I'm liking what I'm seeing on transports. Uh, we don't have a ton of details. We aren't seeing any full data sheets. We did see a Rhino data sheet, uh, uh, like I think last episode, but they it specifically did not have a transport capacity listed, so they were kind of holding that back. So we still don't know exactly what a Rhino's capacity is, but we are at least you know learning that uh, space marine vehicle space marines aren't so picky about which vehicles they ride in, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, and then the next day, we got an article about terrain in the new edition. They said they are simplifying terrain. Terrain provides the benefit of cover rule to those units that can take advantage of it. As in previous editions, this adds one to save rolls against range attacks, but this time there's an important caveat. Having the benefit of cover will not improve saves of a three-up or better against weapons with an armor penetration characteristic of zero. It means a unit will never have its save improved to two-up by terrain. And there is no light cover, dense cover. There is just cover. There's just the benefit of cover. It adds one to your armor saving throws. They specifically do not add it to invulnerable saving throws. But also, yeah, nobody's getting Terminator saves from being in uh, cover, which also means a Terminator in cover gets no benefit against weak weapons because they already have a two-up save. Yeah, that makes sense. In the current edition of 40K... Oh, and they do mention cover is not cumulative. You can't have... have you Basically, you just get the rule, the benefit of cover. You'll never get cover from multiple sources. Um, in the current edition of 40K, uh, figuring out how units interact with certain pieces of terrain requires one of the four terrain categories in a table of 12 different terrain traits, with typical areas having anywhere from one to six features to keep track of. They said they were technically speaking over 12,000 possible terrain types. Uh, this new edition slims that down significantly, with rules entirely determined by the kind of terrain you're using. Now deciding whether or not a unit has benefit of cover is simple as knowing which category their cover falls into. Craters, barricades, debris, hills, woods, or ruins. This feels very old school. Like like sixth, seventh edition style terrain rules. When like those were mm-hmm. like your six you know, your categories. Crater gives cover to any infantry model wholly inside the crater, even if they're fully visible. Uh, barricades. All sorts of terrain are classified as bar- classes barricades. Any model within three inches can claim cover so long as the object partially obscures them from at least one of their attackers. So are we getting back to a little bit of slightly true line of sight on terrain? As the thickness of a barricade can often make it difficult to get within an inch of an enemy unit when charging from the opposite side, this terrain type also modifies the engagement range rules to include models within two inches, providing they're attacking a unit on the other side of the barricade. Debris is basically everything that's like statues, pieces of equipment, etc. Anything that you can't end your move on. Um, these these confer cover when they partially block a model from the attacking unit, regardless of range or size. And each each time a ranged attack is allocated to a model, if that model is not fully visible to every model in the attacking unit because of the terrain feature. That model has the benefit of cover against that attack. Hopefully there's a clear definition of what uh, fully visible means because I could see a very low piece of debris, like some of the the fallen columns that they've included as like scatter terrain in press sets. Like someone saying, yeah, 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 that Imperial Knight who's not really hidden by this piece of terrain at all. Yeah, that's that's cover. It's like "Mm, it shouldn't be. (laughs) So I hope they they define that. Like, a, a big statue? Sure, I'll give you cover from that. Little fallen column? No. <laughs> the hills 
uh, terrain type also encompasses solid buildings that units can stand on, like Battle Zone, Frontierist Landing Pad, or Armored Containers. This gives me PTSD from, like, our first Midwest Conquest. Yeah. <laughs> As remember, we're, like, these these shipping containers, uh, they're a hill now. We'll call them, you know, finally decided after a half hour that they were hills. I mean... We were we were cutting edge is what I'm what I'm just coming up with is that you know <laughs> yeah. GW's following our lead on this, right? Uh, both models and other train features can sit on top of hills provided they don't overhang the edge and like debris. The hill confers cover to anything it partially obscures. I do like this because now that means that like the tubs of ter- hill terrain that I have is like actually usable again. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> hills actually matter because it just has to partially block you and it gives you cover. Yeah. Uh, woods and forests are a little bit more involved. Any model uh, that is not aircraft or towering, which I'm assuming is going to be like knights and things like that, fully inside the wood or viewed through an area of woodland terrain by a unit that is not also inside it is never considered to be fully visible and receives the benefit of cover. If the wood, Basically, if woods intervene between you, but if you're both yeah. in the woods, then there's no cover. Which, I mean, right. that's, that makes sense. And if you're crew, you gain like AP, you increase your AP and yada, yada, yada. No. <laughs> Hopefully. And, it'd and be nice to, to see that and, and Fieldcraft come back. And you have to talk saying, no. I am Kroot. No, <laughs> no. I do not want Kroot Fieldcraft to come back. That is, that was one of the dumbest rules that ever existed. <laughs> and then finally, we have ruins. And I think ruins have one of like the biggest important changes these wrecked and damaged structures completely block visibility of all models through their footprint except for aircraft and towering uh through their footprint regardless of how much you can see through their fancy gothic windows otherwise models outside can shoot in and models inside can shoot out uh, since particularly tall ruins can give attackers an advantageous position, they also come with the plunging fire rule, which improves the AP characteristic of a range attack by one when the attacking model is more than six inches above ground level and shooting at a target on the ground. So, yeah, each time a range attack is allocated to a model, if that model is either wholly within this terrain feature or if it is not fully visible to every model in the attacking unit because of this terrain feature, that model, the model has the benefit of cover. But they also say it does completely block line of sight. So, well, I think what they're saying is you can't shoot through ruins. So if you're in the ruin, you can still shoot in. They can still shoot out. So if right. I'm, you know, so so in the in the picture they have below, for example, the Chaos Space Marines would be considered to be inside the ruin. The mm-hmm. the Space Marines wouldn't be, so they can still shoot each other. But if there is a unit of, or let's say that the Space Marines in the back, or the Chaos Marines in the back are a different unit, you wouldn't be able to shoot through the gap in the ruin to that unit. That's the way I understand okay. it. Yeah, it's it's unclear because they have the, if it's not fully visible to every model in the attacking unit. So, yeah, so, so I, I we're think we're going to have to base some I, definition yeah. on that. <laughs> but I think what they're meaning is that, like, Currently in the you know in the edition you can like oh I'm shooting this unit that's behind this ruin I can see them through the door so they don't get cover and this just simplifies it's like no if you're shooting through a ruin you can't shoot through them because there's debris and a ruin there and you can't see them which right. I'm fine with largely but again yeah we'll need more clarification I'm sure we'll get we'll get more detail yeah I th- I think the the biggest thing is the going to be the definition of like fully visible partly visible obscured like 
and you know, we used to have de- definitions of that in older editions. I'm what I'm, you know, what I'm seeing from all of this is some returns to things that were discarded in eighth edition. Yeah, you know, th- things like the way this terrain, like way line of sight works, the way some of the transports work, things like that. It's like I'm seeing some callbacks, but also still with a lot of things that are straight from like eighth and ninth edition. So it's an interesting fusion of old old ideas and and newer design. Yeah. And like I, I like what they're doing with the terrain because it's at least allowing you to use terrain and giving you more detailed rules than what we had in eighth because that was, in my opinion, the biggest weakness of eighth was the terrain rules Agreed. were garbage. So I'm glad that they're coming out the gate with at least you know thinking about the terrain and the battlefield. Yeah, and I also think there's some the, some weirdness that I think it, they didn't expect with ninth edition terrain rules because like one of the biggest things that like, when I got back to to competitive play this year was the idea of like if you are accident like you know you have like the base of a terrain piece like of a ruin figured out if you were not touching the base of the ruin then the entire ruin was considered obscuring, and it didn't matter if somebody could see you, you still had line of sight blocking. Like, it still obscured you and blocked line of sight. If you accidentally put, like, a toe of your base, like, just a little bit of your base in the ruin, now you're in the ruin and no longer obscures line of sight. It just gives you cover if you're, like, infantry. So it's just like, that was weird. And trying to explain it to people, like, having it explained to me, like, threw me off a bit because I was like, well, Train, strain, strain. And it's like, no, if you're toe in, it's very different. So that was because, like, you can see someone, but technically I can't see you because this block of terrain is obscuring. And I'm guessing yeah. ruins are going to still have a little bit of that. But again, we need the definition of what fully visible is. And given how they're spelling things out in the rules, I think we're going to get that. I just don't think they've wanted to get into that level of minutiae yet in these previews. Yeah. But we'll get there. Right. Uh, and then for about a week, we didn't have a lot of rules previews. It was mostly like either focusing on some of the uh, Age of Sigmar stuff that was coming out, or we had some story recaps. Like they went ahead and recapped what happened in The Lion. And uh, it wasn't until a couple of days ago on Friday, April 28th, that we got a look at the new mission structure in 10th edition. As you'd expect for a new edition, missions have changed in Warhammer 40,000. In fact, there's just one of in the core rules entitled Only War that is uh, a perfectly balanced pitch battle. So it's just kind of a generic fixed mission. Two players ha- fight for control of four objective markers. So that is that is a, their like generic mission for playing in the core book. However, the new edition features the chapter-approved mission system, an evolution of both the popular Tempest of War cards and the Grand Tournament mission packs, allowing you to quickly generate balanced and varied missions for every game. Now, we have done like mission design, you know, mission creation through random the, the random card decks they've released in the past, and we've mm-hmm. really liked it. Like it's been a lot of fun. So uh, yeah, for sure, it's flexible. Yeah, flexible enough to generate anything from a casual pickup game to the entire mission framework for a top-tier tournament. Two different ways to pick your secondary missions. Fixed secondaries will feel more familiar to fans of the Grand Tournament format, while tactical secondaries are more akin to Tempest of War. Either, basically, the decks of cards are broken into several smaller decks. 
the deployment deck, the mission rules, primary missions, secondary missions, and gambits. Uh, secondary missions and gambits, each player will have their own deck. At competitive events, these combinations may sometimes be defined ahead of time, but you'll usually generate them fresh each time you play. Uh, they will always be defined ahead of time in <laughs> tournaments. Yes. Because that's how tournaments work. Yeah. yeah, that's what I meant earlier, bro. Like, this is all really cool, and it will not be used at any tournaments, which is fine. <laughs> I mean, because part of the thing about tournaments is you want everybody to be on an even playing field. Yeah. And if one person ends up getting just a better mission for their army randomly than the next yeah, table over. Sure. Yeah, that's that's going to be an issue. But they do at least spell out. We intend for people to use these as a basis, whether it's generated ahead of time or generated on the fly. But this is the yeah. mission pack like this. This is it right here. So, uh, shuffle each deck, draw one card from the deployment, mission rules, and primary mission decks. These are your shared mission parameters. Deployment card shows where both sides deploy and where the objective markers are. The mission rules card explains any special rules in effect. And the primary mission explains how each side collects victory points. Uh, They don't show us a deployment card, but we've seen, you know, it'll be a map. It'll show deployment areas. It'll show where objective markers are. Apparently, it will be... It will cover the different sizes. In also, thousand point games are no longer played on forty four by thirty. They are played at the same size as two thousand point games, forty four by sixty. So that is now our official standard table size. You only get larger than that if you do a onslaught game. I actually think I like that because the thing I, since I've been actually playing a thousand point games up at a store recently, those boards feel so small. I know it's useful that. Your models, especially if they're infantry, can get across there faster, but it also means you've got no time to think before you and your enemy are pretty much in melee range. Yeah. Yeah, that was something and I gun learned. Gun range doesn't the, matter. Yeah, that was something I learned the hard way when we played those first games, like, back in August of, two th- of 2020, where it's just like, oh, yeah, your Banshees, they're on me turn one. Damn it. <laughs> there was nothing I could do to stop <laughs> yeah. them. So, yeah, larger fields, and that was also, like, you'd have different missions for Incursion versus Strike Force. This is basically saying everybody's playing the same missions regardless of game size. So, for example, like, shuffle each deck, yeah, you, you have your shared, your shared parameters. So, like, the examples they show, sweep and clear is the mission rule. In this mission, if a player controls an objective marker at the end of their command phase, that objective marker remains under your control, even if they have no models within range of it, unless their opponent controls it at the end of any subsequent command phase. So that also tells us objectives are scored, you know, are marked as controlled during the command phase. And the example primary mission they have is take and hold. In the second, third, and fourth battle rounds at the end of each command phase, the player whose turn it is scores five victory points for each objective marker they control, up to 15 points per turn. The player, who, And then in the fifth battle round, the player who has the first turn scores victory points as described above. The player who has the second turn scores VP as normal, except they do at the end of their turn. That's pretty standard with what we've seen in the, the Grand Tournament packs, so nothing unusual there. Um, once they've set up the battlefield and determined who's the attacker and defender, but before actually deploying their armies, players select and reveal their secondary missions. These are personal goals they're trying to achieve, like assassination or deploy teleport homer, which allows them to score uh, additional VP. Each player starts with two secondary missions and choose either fixed or tactical, which we've talked about. Uh, tactical missions offer greater rewards, so more points, but must be replaced with a randomly drawn card each time they're completed. Both players can choose... 
a different way to score so you can play to the strength of your army. Um, so, like, their example, uh, an attacker secondary mission, capture enemy outpost. So, attacker and defender is apparently going to, to matter. You might have different secondaries in those decks, although possibly not. They might be the same. Um, I think they said they're identical, so I would... So there may not be a difference between the two. It may just be a way to identify which deck you're using. Um, so, like, mm-hmm. they have capture enemy outpost. At the end of your turn, if you control one or more objective markers in your opponent's deployment zone, the secondary mission is achieved and you score eight victory points. Um, the defender one is overwhelming force. While the secondary mission is active, each time an enemy unit that started the turn within range and objective markers destroyed, you score three victory points to a max of five. Note that victory points are scored even if such a unit is destroyed and then subsequently resurrected for any reason. If you score any victory points from the secondary mission during a turn, then at the end of that turn, the secondary mission is achieved. So I'm assuming the achieved one is what ties into the tactical missions. Like, you can choose to keep it around as as a fixed mission. So like for that capture enemy outpost, every time you control you you like every turn you take uh, an opponent's objective you score eight like at the end of that turn you score eight points or if you could do it once and then draw another one we'll have to see what all the objectives are yeah Mm -hmm. and i want to say they did say how many cards are in each and when they when they uh did the article on recent like yesterday on how like what was in the leviathan box they did spell out like what cards were there. Let me. F- that deck is going to have five deployment cards, nine primary missions, twelve mission rules, sixteen attacker secondary mission cards, sixteen defender secondary mission cards, four attacker gambit cards, and four defender gambit cards. Now, what are those gambit cards? We haven't mentioned those yet. We're going to get to those next. But so there's going to be five deployment maps and nine primary missions and. 16 secondary missions. Um, so, like, theoretically, I mean, depending on how it goes, I wonder how many they would expect you to get through in a uh, in a game if you went with tactical missions. So, yeah, we, we don't know that yet, but 16 is a pretty good s- selection to choose from. Also, if this is the standard deck and we haven't heard objectives being considered as part of an army detachment or a faction thing... Does this mean we are not going to get faction-specific secondaries? Unknown. Part of me expects that we will once Codex is hit. Yeah. Maybe, but I kind of hope they don't, because that has proven to be one of the hardest areas to balance. And one of the the biggest differences between, like, what armies, like, the the haves and have-nots. Like, we saw it between as armies were getting converted from 8th to ninth edition, like, if you didn't have faction-specific secondaries, you were on the back foot because you're scoring, you were not going to score as consistently. And then those armies that had really easy ones to score could just clean up. Like, that was a, a big balancing issue. And I'm kind of fine with getting rid of them. Like, it was an experiment, but I kind of don't think the experiment panned out as well as it could have, especially f- for, from a balance point of view. Yeah, no, I agree. I just, I think they're going to also want to put stuff in codexes. I, I really hope they don't. <sighs> but then we get to the Gambit cards. So 
primary mission not going as planned. There's skill, still hope. A daring gamut may be your ace in the hole. At the end of the third battle round, either or both players may choose to play a gambit card chosen in secret from two identical decks. Once a player re- reveals a gambit, their original goal is complete, thrown completely out of the window, replacing their primary mission with completely fresh and uh, intensely challenging new mission objective. They keep all existing VP and their secondary missions, but can no longer score. Instead, they pursue their gambit to the bitter end. A gambit is a risky pro- prospect, but pulling it off scores an intimidating chunk of victory points, allowing a losing player to snatch an unlikely victory from the Jaws defeat. Better still, they ensure all ba- battles stay valid and violent throughout all five battle rounds. This set includes three different gambits, one of which is randomly discarded before you make your choice, allowing you to keep your opponent guessing. Of course, you can also reveal the proceed as planned card, in which case you continue with your original primary mission. You might even bluff your opponent into panicking and taking on a gambit themselves. So we only see one of the gambit cards, because we do see the proceed as planned, but it just says... Yeah, you've chosen not to attempt a gambit. Until the end of the battle, you continue to score victory points from your primary mission. The one they do show is orbital strike coordinates. At the end of your fifth turn, if one or more units from your army that are not battle-shocked are wholly within nine inches of a corner of the battlefield, and those units are not within your own deployment zone, roll 2d6. Add one to the result for every other corner of the battlefield that has one or more units from your army wholly within nine inches of it, excluding units that are battle-shocked or within engagement ranges of enemy enemy units. If the final result is 12 or more, this gambit is successfully completed and you score 30 victory points. So, like this one, it's real random whether you're able to pull it off, and you definitely won't be able to pull it off if you can't get somebody within nine inches of a corner outside of your deployment zone. I see the the tactics here is you'll have one, two, or three corners. Unfortunately, then you still have to, if you have all three, roll a 10 or higher on 2d6. So if you have three, well, for nine, you'd have to roll a nine because it's 12 or more. If you can take all three corners. They all don't have to be outside? Okay. Uh, For every other... uh, only the okay, so only the first you have to have one gotcha unit within nine inches of of a corner outs that are not that okay. are not within your deployment zone, and then the rest of the corners can be yours. So you could have four. Okay. You could theoretically hold all four corners and be able to roll, and an then it'd eight. be a nine or above. No, eight or eight or above if you had four. Or no, if you're right. You only add one, so you're right. Nine or above. Yeah, you are right. Yeah. I mean, what this even says in the narrative is you're telling all your forces to pull back. We're going to just bomb this location. Right. And then you, your role is to see how good their coordinates were on the bombing. If you neutralize the enemy with the bombing, yay, you get your 30. If the guy's up in orbit missed, uh, well, oh well. <laughs> and I, I've seen some people complain like, man, it would suck to lose a game because of a lucky roll, somebody's lucky roll on on 2d6 but considering the average roll on 2d6 is seven you're not likely to win on this it's going to be hard to win with that no it puts some excitement back and kind of gives you hope even though it's a rare chance of hope (laughs) your odds aren't zero i'll say it that way (laughs) yeah and this is isn't doesn't happen until the end of the third battle round which means like that means like if your opponent pulls that one, it's like, okay, I have two rounds to kill you in the corners because I got to keep you from being able to, from having a, a decent chance to win. So if you've like focused all your, 
your forces into like one particular area or you're too spread out to like hit the, or you're like spread out in the wrong directions to be able to hit the corners effectively. Um, that could like put you in a really bad spot, but it does, you know, it forces the other, you know, the other player to change their tactics. So it's interesting. Uh, and also like you might not get this one because they do say that you have to discard one of them before you can pick one. So you don't right, even get so access get to, to all one four of- and automatically get like, this is the best one for my army. Right. The way it sounds is you'll have you'll have the three, and then you discard one of those three, so you get to choose from the other two, but then you also have the Procedus plan. You can move in there if you want to be sneaky. Right. And you also don't have to play a Gambit. You could. That's why they're like, you could play the Procedus planned one, and your opponent thinks, oh, crap, they're playing a Gambit, and see if you can bluff them out and get them to maybe try to play one to beat your big surge of points that you could get. Because once they play a gambit, that's their mission now. They don't, you know, they can't score the primary anymore. So this is interesting. I mean, they had something kind of like this in the the older open war decks where they had like the ruse or the twist that you could you could have in. But this definitely has a bigger impact. I am curious to see how tournaments, if tournaments will allow these at all, because this is something where I could see they say like no gambits. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm going to guess no, but I also can understand that I think this is, I could see where some tournaments would allow this because there is at least some tactics and control over this. So it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's gamesmanship involved with it. So I could understand maybe keeping it, but I, I would not expect that they'll, that most tournaments will allow that. Yeah. It's like, like I said, there's going to be some feel bads if somebody loses loses like a final round off of a two a single two d six die roll. <laughs> I mean, I've uh, never had I've never once had a forty k game come down to a final die roll on the last I, round. I no, I <laughs> I know I know that like there there is yeah. that, but it's a game of dice. It is a game of right. dice, but. Yeah, I like I will they allow the primary missions? Sure. Will they allow secondary mission selection? Absolutely. But will they predefine the primary missions, the mission rules and the deployments? Almost guaranteed. Yeah. Uh will they allow gambits? I think that it, that's the biggest unknown from this for tournaments. I think everything else you can see like the, how they're going to use it. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, I also think most mi- most tournaments will probably it because the tournament scene doesn't like to change too much until things have been tested out well, I imagine you're going to see a focus on fixed missions rather than tactical. Tournament players have never yes. been terribly fond of the the like random objectives every turn. I do like this being this kind of the standard mission pack, though. I we we've all like I said we've always loved the you know coming up with missions from decks. I I I'm I am personally completely here for this. Oh, yeah, I think this is great. I just don't expect it. I expect most tournament organizers will structure this more than what's uh, what is available here. Like I said, I, I could see deployment mission primary all being fixed. And then rather than like draw secondaries, it's like you pick your secondaries, you know, and it basically just being the current mission structure we have now, which right. is fine, you know. But yeah, it, it I don't. Works. I don't expect this will get. I don't expect this will be fully implemented at the tournament scene. But for casual pickup games, this is going to be a blast. Yeah, and it again, this feels like a little bit of a throwback to earlier editions with like five deployment you know modes and you know nine mission. But see, five 
See, even if we take secondaries out of it. Well, and that's and that's also only in the Leviathan thing, too. So now that this is more a core part of the game, when you update your chapter approved for like the next you know series of missions, the next six months of a season, you can change these, which I do like. Yes. Is that it gives the ability to like you put out a pack of cards, you change up the missions, you change it from this structure, and you're not fundamentally changing the rules of the mission. You're just changing the details within the cards. Right. So. Mm-hmm. It also means they can, just like they've been selling new Grand Master, you know, you know, Grand Tournament packets every year, they'll sell more decks of cards every year. Yep. Um, so, so based on five deployments, nine primary missions, and 12 mission rules, that is a, com- that is a total of 540 possible mission combinations, not counting secondaries or gambits. Yeah. It will be interesting to see if, like... Will tournaments standardize on a particular set or will people generate like for tournament packets? Will TOs like, okay, I'm going to generate our like five or six rounds. Okay. So here, like here's round one, boom, boom, boom. Here's round two, boom, 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 you know, do that. And then like, okay, so those are going to be our missions for this event, like ahead of time. Cause like, I would like to see, I think more flexibility in, in tournament packets so we don't just see the same like nine missions over and over again would be nice. So I, I really think what's what's going to determine how that part of it uh, plays out is what the big events do. If Adepticon, right. Nova, and LVO adopt those, then you'll see more of the other events adopted. But I'm... I have the feeling that those are going to be fixed. That they're just going to be like, here are the, here are the six missions and... Yeah, and that's it. Because they're because again, those larger events, they want to have, they want to have everything as standardized as possible. So I think you're gonna, I think you're gonna see the missions that most clo- closely hew to what the previous chapter approved missions are, be the ones that everybody ends up using. Now you're probably right, and you're probably right that it'll be, and it will be standardized. Like people are gonna like. I would be surprised, actually, you know, as you mentioned it, that if, you know, people are going to look at, like, what is, what can we build that is the closest to missions that people are already familiar with, especially yep. considering, like, there are going to be tournaments that are going to be dropping, like, like, Show Me Showdown, for example, they said, we're going to be a 10th edition tournament, they're going to want to drop, you know, like, I would imagine they'd want to run missions pretty similar, so people aren't comp- you know, they're already going to have to relearn rules and data sheets and everything. If the missions are at least vaguely similar, that will help people ease into the new the new format. Yeah, no, for sure. And this is why I always like the timing of when Midwest Conquest is, because we can we're typically at the tail end of edition. So we have a full year before we have to run our event. Mm-hmm. I would absolutely love for this to be implemented and adapted and people get comfortable with this, because I would love to not have to put together a friendly mission pack and just be like, no, generate your missions. Every game's different. Generate your missions. Pull, you know, draw your cards, do it from there, do the whole thing. Because for for some for some events, for things like narrative events, friendly, stuff like that, it's a perfect system. Standardized, like, competitive tournament events are not going to use this. Right. Or they're not going to use it the way it's designed. And, and that's fine. I don't think that's ever... I, they even kind of say in there, like... You know, sometimes you're going to pick them ahead of time. They understand what the players, you know, will want or how players do this. And my hope is that some of the smaller events will experiment with it and do more interesting things. And maybe 
will as a community get away from the fixed mission packs but i i can't imagine the larger ones are gonna are gonna go that route i i imagine they're gonna stick with the fixed missions yeah no i i i think you're right um i also have to wonder if this is a chance for them to uh make up for the sales they're going to lose in selling stratagem decks maybe (laughs) because because like this is a better way in my opinion (laughs) yeah this is something that every player will maybe not have to have because there's nothing you other than the gambits there's nothing you can do here that you couldn't do with like rolling dice like this could mm-hmm. you could have a matrix of all of this but you know having everyone it's like okay so you can download the core rules for free you know have your army listing buy your turn you know have your tournament deck you know have your mission deck and and your army and, and dice and there you go but uh yeah, this is something that hopefully they will make the make this available outside of the, the box set because this seems like kind of a critical piece. Yeah. So so we'll see like what all is going to be released. Like I really do hope, you know, Dennis, you had mentioned earlier that like it seemed like a bad idea that the only way to get like a, a print rule book will be this box at launch. I think that this is their main mission structure. That also means it's a really bad idea if they don't have these cards available elsewhere, you know, as a separate purchase right. at launch. Yeah. And I could see them doing it either way. On the other hand, if they want to make a slim, you know, rule book, like core rules only rule book available at launch, that would be phenomenal. <laughs> I'd be very happy yeah. with that. Uh, but that anyway, that is all the uh the official releases of new rules. But there's one more thing I want to cover because fortunately uh, a writer named Alex Evans was at Warhammer Fest this weekend and over on wargamer.com he wrote an article because uh, he got a chance to actually play one of those demo games they had at Warhammer Fest and uh, so he he wrote an article about eight new rules we learned playing Warhammer 40,000 10th edition these are rules that uh, Games Workshop has not detailed yet on Warhammer Community. So this was really cool to see because it answers some of the questions that we've had about like, well, what, how, like, how does Blast work and things like that. Like, we've seen mentions of these, but we don't know exactly how they work yet. Well, this gives us kind of a little bit of an insight. There is a caveat. Uh, he says, bear in mind, these were noted, noted down quickly mid-game based on the pronouncements of our Master of Ceremonies Games Workshop's Nick Baton, who himself gave the disclaimer that there's always the chance he remembered something a bit wrong because they do not have the print rules out at these tables. Somebody is telling yeah. you the rules, so you have to hope they remembered it properly. <laughs> so take this with a slight grain of salt, but this is from the viewpoint of someone who actually got a chance to play at Warhammer Fest has played a very basic games of 10th edition. Uh, other things I saw was that like they didn't have, they weren't using faction rules. So like nobody was using like Oath of, Oath of Moment. We still don't know what Synapse does. Like they were not doing that. And apparently the, the tables were limited to, I think I mentioned this earlier, uh, two uh, Screamer Killers and two units of Termagants versus two Ballistas Dreadnoughts, and two units of the uh, Pyre Blaster Marines. But based on that, uh, here's here's some rules changes. 10th edition Blast. In 10th edition, Blast weapons work a little differently. They'll get to roll one additional attack dice per five models in the target unit. So if you're firing at a 30-model unit with a Blast weapon that fires D6 shots, you'll get D6 plus six shots total. 
Uh, so instead of it like, okay, so if the unit is six to 10, you are a minimum of three shots for, uh, but if you're 11 or more, it's max shots, which could be a ridiculously large number of shots. Now it's going to be like, you'll get a little bit more consistency against large units, but it'll also calculate a lot faster. And also means like in the past we had like that, like you didn't want to have a a unit go over, like six models because then you knew you were going to get at least three, you're know, going to be hit at least three times. That I don't think that that makes it like a little less of a concern that if a unit is six to 10 models, I think it's kind of fine now. Yeah. But, and it also means having a large blob squad is not the, uh, like really a punishment, especially against some of the larger blast weapons where it might be like 2d6, 3d6 hits. And that's not an extra attack per, like, die rolled. It's just one extra attack. So if you had a weapon that's, like, 2d6, like a blast 2d6, well, against a unit of, sit like, 5, it's 2d6 plus 1. So uh, that seems like it'll calculate out a bit faster, and you won't have the argument of, is it a minimum of 3 hits or a minimum of 3 hits per die? I don't think that was ever fully, you know, I don't think people ever came to an agreement on that, even though I believe everything as written was supposed to be three total. But anyway, so that's 10th edition blast weapons are going to be a little bit more streamlined, which makes sense. 10th edition Overwatch has a major change. It's still a stratagem. It still costs one CP. It's still limited to once per turn, but it is not limited to the charge phase. If an enemy unit ends its move in range of you, you can Overwatch it just like back in second edition yeah that's actually interesting kind of cool and it it kind of makes it take the place of the oh you just deep strike someone in here or in this case oh you just moved over here so it makes the interrupt shooting actually matter well and they mentioned as well like they wanted people to be able to be interactive in all the different phases of the game so like the joke that i immediately thought of is like Oh, yeah, I'm going to be really interactive during your movement phase. But, like, yeah, actually, (laughs) yeah, you need to be paying attention. Like, you need to be active during their movement phase. So, yeah, I like this. (laughs) Um, They do also say that he he does also write that, uh, remember, though, in 10th, you only get one CP each command phase. So any Overwatch shooting will limit your stratagem options next turn, although you also have fewer stratagems to juggle, so that's not necessarily as big an issue. I have also seen it suggested that you start at zero CP. Interesting. We will we will see what happens there. That definitely gets rid of the you know the alpha striking issue is if you if you literally can't because you don't have the resources for it. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. But uh, that could you know having that be a very tactical choice. Like, do I save this CP for doing something cool? like on my turn or do I use this because they moved their a unit which I need to whittle down which also means like a unit that is moving to get into charge position you can shoot them before charging we don't know if overwatch will still hit only on sixes or if you're going to fire you know hit at your standard ballistic skill we don't know yet but uh, being able to use it anytime is actually pretty cool Uh, this one 10th edition objective markers 
This one kind of surprised me to see. In 10th edition, models cannot stand on objective markers anymore. No model can end its move covering any part of an objective marker. Uh, Nick Baton tells us this is aimed at making sure all players can clearly see all the objective markers on the table at any time. Sucks to be you, like night players. <laughs> well, it's it's... I mean, I can see that if you can't be on it, that gives everybody the opportunity to be on it. But it also means you suddenly have some impassable terrain on the board that's not terrain that you have to, like, run around if you want to melee. And people will probably use that to their advantage of, ha, you're not touching me because there's this in the way. That is definitely a possibility, yeah. It's also going to be interesting for all those makers of neoprene objective markers, including Games Workshop, who also make neoprene objective markers that you can buy at their conventions. Oh, because gosh. It, yeah, and I really it's like only those. going to count that 40 millimeter circle in them. Apparently, objectives are yeah. going to be standardized at 40 millimeter, which is nice. That's how people have been playing them for years. But basically saying you cannot step on the middle of this. You cannot have a model end well. here. A lot of them have that circle built into them now. Yeah, they do, but you're going to have to remember to not touch that circle. And some of them are not as clearly yeah. marked as others. Well, well I just use the more clearly marked it, ones. It said you can't <laughs> can't end your movement on it, right? Right. You cannot end your movement covering any part of it. So you can move over it. It's not completely yeah, yeah. impassable terrain. You just can't. Okay. Well, I was more thinking of the fight phase. But yes, I mean, yeah, we will have to see what the you know what the fuller rules look like. But again, and again, this was all relayed via voice to someone during the mission. But I that is that is an interesting change. One thing it does open up though is for people who really get into modeling. Hey, like in the past, Games Workshop would do those neat like objective marker sets, and no one would ever use them because they were impractical. Because it's like, well, yeah, but I can't stand on this. Well, now they can do. You can do cool modeled objective markers again because you can't stand on them. Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of that's kind of fun. Uh, then tenth edition fight phase rules. Uh, we learned a few useful tidbits about the tenth edition fight phase while our Inferno squad marines were getting pulverized by screamer killers. Because as we said, screamer killers will t- kill nearly anything they touch. <laughs> Um, rules for piling in at the beginning of the fight phase remain the same as in ninth edition, but the rules governing who can fight afterwards have changed a bit. Melee engagement is pretty straightforward. A model that is in base contact with an enemy model can fight it, as can any, any models that are in base contact with that model. So it's no longer an inch engagement range. It is base to base contact once again, as it was back in the day. And then units that aren't engaged with the enemy at the end of the fight phase can still make a three inch consolidation move but only if it puts them in control of an objective or in an engagement range of an enemy unit. So you don't just get the three-inch consolidate move to get you slightly closer to somebody. It's like you either consolidate into combat or you consolidate onto an objective or you don't consolidate. Yeah, we'll have to see how that's exactly worded because I could see people still doing it to reposition from... They're in engagement range. Wait, consolidations after you finish something up. Yeah, yeah. I know it might work out then. <laughs> uh, then uh, we mentioned back in when we were talking about the the morale changes, in, you know, for Battleshock, uh, talking about desperate escape. Like you know, you would if you were trying to fall back, you'd have to make a desperate escape test. Um, as we know, tenth edition battle 
shock tests are made on 2d6. If you, you need to equal or beat the unit's leadership stat or become battle shocked for the round. If your unit's battle shocked, it, you know, objective control drops to zero. Uh, and if it falls back from combat, it must make a desperate escape test. What's that? You roll a die for each model falling back, and for each one or two, the model is removed from play. So as we suspected, that part works similarly to combat attrition tests. So if something, something forces you to make desperate escape tests, your, each model that runs away has a one, one in three chance to just die. And theoretically, that could carry over to vehicles as well. Like if you can get a vehicle battle shocked and it falls back, it might just die on, on a one or two. Yeah, it's a good thing. Uh, it's a good thing we changed. Uh, they changed the morale stuff so you're not just randomly pulling models off after a die roll. <laughs> Nah, I, it's fine. I, this yeah. actually, this tracks. It'll be interesting to see how it builds out. But yeah, this seems fine. <laughs> I mean, this is an interest. It, it's it's somewhere between the current edition where you can just fall back with no penalty whatsoever. Like there's no, there's yeah. no reason not to fall back other than not being able to shoot. To like the old fourth and fifth, like fourth through seventh edition days of oh your unit failed morale, you're dead. Like in close combat, yeah. you f- you fell back. You're dead. <laughs> like you just you're just dead now. This is somewhere in between. I I don't hate it. I I'm I will like. It will be interesting to see how it actually plays out in practice. Um, it'll be it'll be interesting to see if there are like units that get the ability to ignore this or not. Hmm. Yeah, some yeah. will. There will be units that get are able to ignore it. There will also be units that are f- able to f- that will probably be able to force you to make a desperate escape test. Like, hey, witches with their nets. Like, you want to escape from witches? It's de- you have to make a desperate escape. Let's throw the nets on a land raider. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I at that point, I think it's the witches that will need to make a desperate escape from being entangled <laughs> in the net as they get dragged around. <laughs> And that actually is an interesting question. It's like, can could, could witches assault a land raider and make it die if it falls back? Like that's that's going to be an interesting silly. situation to see. It is silly, but it's like, will there be any guidelines on? And again, this is being dis, you know mentioned via rules where there weren't not weren't, you know weren't any like transports. Like there was a they had like ballistas dreadnoughts. Okay, I can see a dreadnought getting like. Its systems cut down as it tried to flee, you know? That I could see. But yeah, a tank, you shouldn't be able to, like, you know, stab a tank to death as it pulls back. So we don't know how how deeply this will affect particular unit types. But again, I don't I don't hate it. I'm interested in seeing how it plays out. Uh, let's see. Screamer Killers Force Battleshock tests. We we all we have seen that from their data sheet. And they do, he, you know, he he does specifically mention that it is on hits, not wounds, as you noted earlier. Yeah. And then finally, 10th edition Space Marine Sergeant. Speaking of combat, as a last little change, uh, Space Marines now have a flat three attacks. Three attacks. There is no more shock assault rule that gives them extras when they fight. And sergeants don't get extra attacks for just being sergeants. They just get different war gear choices. So, like, your sergeant might have a power fist, but he's not going to have four attacks with it. It's just going to be a, just another Marine that has the option to take a different weapon. I mean, really, like, that also gets down to, like, you don't have to have two different stat lines for a unit. Like, yeah. Which, I'm fine with that. That streamlines things. It's like, the unit is a unit is a unit. 
Like they they all work together as a cohesive whole. If you want to have somebody special in there, you bring in a leader. So I think at this point, I, I've looked to see if there are any other um, reports from people who have played at Warhammer Fest. I haven't. This is the the only one I've seen so far. But uh, uh, so like. It's nice to get some extra details from people who have actually had a chance to have their hands on with this edition, even in a limited format. Again, I'm not seeing anything I actively dislike about this. Yeah. I, I definitely have, there are definitely things I want to see spelled out more. I am concerned about little a little bit of the terrain visibility things. I am curious to see how different units are going to interact with these desperate escapes. Um I'm curious to see how, like, if there are any other limitations on Overwatch. But, like, most of the changes I'm seeing, I am actually on board with. Like, I, you know, the thing that surprises me the most about what they've dropped is you t- hear sometimes about, uh, like, in game design, the idea of, like, sacred cows. Like, there are things about this game that we will not change. Like, uh, that, like, the idea of like class levels in D and D, like nobody's going to get rid of class levels in D and D. That is a sacred cow. That is you know part of the the game, part of the setting. The like having armor class as a defensive stat, you know, is you know just that is mm-hmm. like a fixed defensive stat is a sacred cow. People you know are not going to touch that. There's a couple of things that I would have considered sacred cows of ninth uh, edition or of forty k in general that I am surprised to see gone, like perils of the warp. And psychic tests no longer being a thing. Like, that's actually surprised me to see how much they stripped those down into just like, yep, it's just another thing that has the psychic tag to it. Yeah. I Yeah. I think that's interesting. It, it may be that we'll see, like, some different roles that will cause, like, psychic tests or perils for different things, but going forward, but... Yeah, it's it's interesting to not see see those things. Mm-hmm. Well, and then I just also want to caveat as well that like we haven't seen them yet. That doesn't mean they're not in there in some altered form or stuff like that. Like we we clearly have not seen everything yet. Yeah, but yeah, yeah like they're they're very true. They've definitely been more willing to. They're definitely making more changes than I thought they were initially planning on making with this edition. So like. I know my originally my additional question my original question was like well what's so you know what are they changing to justify chucking out all the rules and going from ninth to tenth and it does seem like they are willing to look at the entire game from the ground up and make deep changes and you know to try to streamline it so you know we, we obviously we won't know until we get the rules what if that worked or not but I like that they're willing to like go in and try to address everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is definitely a ground-up rebuild with just enough vestiges of 9th edition left to make it vaguely confusing at times. But, you know, that happens <laughs> with every edition. Like, I mean, we we talked about, you know, in our old episodes when we switched from 7th to 8th, like, yeah, we have to unlearn everything we knew about, you know, 7th edition and learn 8th edition. And I think with 9th to 10th, it will will have to do the same kind of thing. Only there's going to be just enough things that are yep. Like this works exactly the same as it did in ninth edition. This works almost the same as in ninth edition, but a little bit different. And then this is you know. And then there's going to be things that are completely different. Uh, that yeah, it's going to. You know, it is it is a drastic choice. It is actually a change that is worthy of an edition change. I don't think yeah. six to seventh was worthy of an edition change, but this is definitely enough of a change to to matter 
so yeah, I again, uh, so far I don't hate anything I'm seeing. I have questions, but I don't hate anything I'm seeing. I don't look at this and like, like, oh god, I don't want to play this. I'm like, I'm actually curious to see how this is going to play out. I'm actually, you know, happy to have like non psychic armies that will not just completely roll over when someone uses a psychic power on them. That will be nice. I like that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing how this, you know, how things work with the new Overwatch. I'm curious to see how like i want to see what the new core rules look like i want to play these like the the card ba- like the deck based missions cuz i've already liked those so i'm like i'm curious to see this new style like i'm still hyped for the new edition i'm i wouldn't say i'm unreasonably hyped i'm still cautiously optimistic as as we mentioned in past episodes about this but so far i haven't seen anything to really make me question that optimism like i the changes all seem to make sense you know yeah, there there is one more article that was linked for also from Wargamer. Uh, not so much an article about the rules, playing them, but an article about the rules in general. Please, Games Workshop, keep the Warhammer Forty Thousand Tenth Edition rules free. Uh, Warhammer 40,000 10th edition will launch with three rules for all models and factions. GW must resist the temptation to charge for them later. I wish you the best of luck. Yeah. I d- I mean, I love the idea of having everything available as free downloads, uh, at least for like just the the rules components. I do not think it will happen because there's money to be made in codexes, for sure. Yeah, I I just I kind of feel like the the question is is like how much rules content will be in the codex that is exclusive to the codex and not in whatever is available for download because right because age of sigmar currently had basically has that kind of system right Mm -hmm. where the base rules for like all the units are available for free but then like you have to buy the battle tomes to get like the the formations and like kind of the more specialized rules for the army yeah. yeah for for like the army rules and stuff so like i could see it being a situation like that where like you want you want crusade rules you want more faction rules more it's and, just and, more rules <laughs> yeah and, well yeah. and honestly like i don't mind like charging for stuff like the crusade rule like things are like this is something that a a subset of people are going to to want like this is a particular mode of playing so if you want the rules for that you will have to pay for that i'm fine with that like that is the thing i am i'm totally on board with the, for them charging for that uh, you know for for niche audiences but something that everybody needs to be able to play especially when considering the cost of models like yeah yeah give people the model the rules for the models for free I don't even necessarily mind if they charge, like, if the Codex has a few extra detachments, I would like those to be free, but I understand if they just want to have, like, one or two generic ones, but I would really like those to be free as well. But, yeah, the lore, the photography, the, like, crusade stuff, like, all that, I don't mind them charging for, but it'd be kind of nice if the, if the, the unit rules and the, especially the core rules, like, there, and it should not be a stripped down version of the core rules. It should be that full 60 page document available as a free download. Like, that should, that, there's no reason why, if they're giving it away free once, they shouldn't swap it out and say, okay, well, now we're charging for it. 
you want to if you want to charge me to get a print copy, sure, that has a physical cost to you, fine. But let me download it for free. Do I think they'll do that? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, just remember, any rules can be had for free if you're willing to look hard enough for them. <laughs> if you don't mind going to, to questionable websites, I will neither confirm or deny that I have been to said questionable websites if I needed to look up a rule that was easier to find there than it was in their app. Please have a good right. app at launch. Please get oh get the app right at launch. Please, please get the app right at launch. That is going to be so important for this to work. I'll hold my breath on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I d- don't disagree. <laughs> No, I mean that. I think that's the part I'm least likely to believe is that they'll have the app right at launch because they haven't yet ever. <laughs> but <laughs> hey, um, cautiously cautiously optimistic is the is the code word for the day. Cautiously optimistic, right? All right. Well, um, in in honor, uh, considering that we're running a little bit later in the day because we got started a bit later, um, we will probably take a take a uh, page from the tenth edition rulebook and skip the morale phase. <laughs> but we are going to have hobby. But we are going to do hobby progress. Uh, so I have an entire arm, uh, Voton army built. Everything that I have is built now. Um, it will nice. be primed and base coated uh, in a couple of days, and then I can start getting into details. But uh, I still think the Cathonian Berserks were my the the models I least enjoyed building of all of them. Everything else went pretty easily. The uh, Einhir Hearthguard went fine. Um, the, uh, the Thunderkin broker actually went together a lot easier than I thought they would. Nice. Like, yeah, the only trick on them is the guns, if you're going to try and magnetize it. I am not magnetizing the guns, but right, I am so keeping them simple. separate for painting. <laughs> I am keeping them right. separate for painting purposes at the moment. Yeah. And, uh, otherwise, like, the bikes went together. I did have a bit of a crisis moment. One of the bikes, like, I broke off of the its hero rock because it's connected to the base oh, by one little tiny right, right. point i was able to repin it and reconnect it and it's fine now so cool. like it that's that's fine but that had me like stressing for one night because it's like i was like kind of adjusting it and it just went snap because again games workshop is trying to defy the laws of physics and <laughs> So that that was a moment of fret, uh, of fret, but uh, I actually have everything like set up on sticks for easy priming. Um, got the the two characters on like painting handles, so I can work on them. I also like also have my Dante and another model that I'm working on for a commission ready to go. So uh, tomorrow is going to be a priming day for me, and uh, I'll actually be able to get painting and i've got my uh, sons of horse green paint for getting the base colors down on them so that should go pretty quickly and then i've got like uh three weeks or so to to finish getting them painted uh but i should be able to knock them out pretty easily because it's just going to be a lot of the same kind of painting over and over again and i'll probably take a couple extra days off in the next couple of weeks just to have a you know days where i just like i am just painting this i mean I would, this is more uniform than the Dark Angels I was painting because that was painting three different color schemes. This is at least one color scheme. <laughs> True. Right. That that has been my progress. I have I have a lot of Voton built. So I have been painting and 3D printing and working on prize support for the uh, for the upcoming Midwest Conquest. 
and uh, slap chopping my world eaters to get them ready for the Kansas City Open. So haven't really made a lot of progress on painting the world eaters yet. I've basically got them all built, got them primed, got them, you know, did the dry, the first dry brushes. Uh, I haven't actually started putting any contrast paint or anything like that on them yet because I got uh, like new windows installed last weekend. So I was basically moving everything around my house to get the windows free and then moving everything back. So I'm going to hopefully start after we, after we're done here, I'll probably start working on those, but I've got three weeks to get them painted or four weeks technically. So, uh, mm-hmm. shouldn't be a problem. Uh, I guess for me, I got the last two Sagittars fully painted and decaled out. So now I have all of the models for Midwest conquest and the U S open for the Votan completely done. So that's a good thing. So then I started on the berserks and Rob. Yeah. I didn't have as much trouble, I guess, getting them together as you did, but I am not enjoying painting them. They're just the, either the axes in the way. Cause I went with the axes or the cords on the back that attach to their arms mm, are in the way. Yeah. It's like, it's just they're, they're Yeah. But, and I only started those because I started working on the Revenant Titan. And, um, first issue I had was, well, it's not something I'm going to put together and then paint because you can actually see the backs of a lot of the armor pieces. And I want to make sure I can actually paint them. So it's going to be a sub assembly, um, paint job and then put it together. But I had the thing of, how, what base to use, which we kind of mentioned earlier. So I, I tried to kind of like put it together with, um, putty tack and I, I wanted to make sure I got removable putty tack. And well, it was too removable because it didn't stick well enough to keep things attached for enough for me to try and pose it. So then when I kind of got something halfway working so I could check the pose, um, yeah, the stance was going to be way too big for the base I got. And so I started looking at other bases. Then I realized, oh, if I get a different base, then that base is too big for the KR case I've already picked up for it for transport. So I said, okay, I guess I'll just change the design of how I'm going to have it stand. And so it's just going to be a normal standing on two legs thing, not anything dynamic, but it'll be sturdier that way. And I don't know. Um so then I finally had good weather yesterday, and so I I have it primed, and so I'm probably going to put the Berserks on hold, start the painting on the Revenant Titan, because once I get it painted, then I can actually put it together, and then hopefully have it also ready for the Midwest Conquest, so I can try and, since I'll be there for a week, get a challenge game between the, the Revenant Titan and friends versus the Taunar and friends of Rob's. <laughs> <laughs> so progress for me work is still uh starting to get busy for me so i have a little less time i've managed to just get more orcs primed more i primed like a couple of the units of of orc boy of the new orc boy kits uh that i built a little while ago and primed a unit of um, uh, commandos to to go with uh, Snickerot that I've got primed, and I can start painting on those pretty soon, probably. 
Well, as I said, we are skipping the morale phase, so we are going to call that our show. Uh, this was episode 278. We'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks with two, uh, episode 279. That'll be our last episode before Midwest Conquest. And uh, I think our, I think the episode after that will have to be a combo Midwest Conquest U.S. Open recording thing because that's yeah. the, you know those right you know both taking up the weekends and running back right into back. each other. Yeah, that that's gonna be that's gonna be a lot. Or a, a double recording mm-hmm. where we only do the event for like the first half of the episode will be Midwest Conquest, the second half be U.S. Open, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and so you're not the one that has to edit it, so it's gonna be a lot. <laughs> we, but we'll we'll talk fast or just yeah. Uh, no, nobody we'll wants to out. hear us in chipmunk mode. We'll figure. Yeah, we'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> but until then, from all of us here at Preferred Enemies, I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. Uh, good night, good gaming, and GW, we like what you're doing. Please keep those rules free. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.